Welcome to the Grip Strip Podcast, episode 61, the What Grinds My Gears Part 2, except we have somebody that has way more knowledge than we do about the inside parts of motorsports through all of his knowledge as a as a announcer journalist and now as a racetrack promoter and PR guy. Uh, somebody who has the Northeast knowledge, which I'll always be uh, willing to have anybody and everybody that wants to come on here and talk about it, the mods and the supers and the dirt knowledge as well with sprints and late models and everything like that. Uh, we're glad to have uh, Derek Pernasiglio on tonight. And before I throw to you, Derek, for your introduction, um, my name is Philip Matthew. I'm here with my co-host, Joshua Fine. What's good, man? Yeah, I'm doing great, Phil. So I'm glad to be back on the show. Glad to have Derek on the show. You know, and I'm glad to talk about what grinds our gears. And of course, you know, we got the month of May on. So glad to talk about yep. all of it here. We got NASCAR and Coda this week. Last week uh, was Dover. And uh, we'll get into all that. We'll also talk about uh, the news with Brad Keselowski and what might uh, might also be going on in regards to silly season. The Monaco Grand Prix is this weekend, and it's one of the biggest races in the world. Um, not on the Memorial Day weekend like the greatest day in motorsports, which is kind of a bummer. But, you know, at the end of the day, we kind of know who's probably going to win. So maybe that's part of the thing. Uh, we'll talk about Indianapolis 500 practice. Qualifying will be this weekend for the Indianapolis 500. Who has a chance to pole the front row and who has a, a chance to go home? And there actually will be a couple cars that are going to go home this year. And anything else that's going on in the world of motorsports. But before that, I introduced you, Derek, and thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, you know, we just had a few minutes to talk, and it's just cool just to talk to somebody who's in there and has that connection, but also is a racer. And I think that's fundamentally the thing that we love uh, trying to bring racers on this show because at the end of the day, it's the genuine passion that drives both Josh and I, and I know that that's the same passion that you have. Um, so thank you so much, Derek, for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's great to be here. And if there's anybody that enjoys bench racing and talking racing more, it's it's me. But uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. This should be a lot of fun. Yeah, we're we definitely do bench race here, and we go <laughs> off on tangents, especially me. Um, Trying to get Josh mad is kind of funny, but it never really happens. I'm the one who gets <laughs> mad. Um, hence all the medications that I'm on. But anyways, so I guess the initial question for you, Derek, is where did where did this passion start? You're now a racetrack promoter down south, but where did this passion start for racing? What and like now that you still drive and you're able to do all these things, like. Where did it all start? Why And why is this still a thing all these years on in your life? I was brought up with it. So it's been the only thing that I know. Uh, that's really been the biggest thing. Um, uh, you guys can hear me, right? Okay, cool. I just, I see a little uh, mute icon down on the bottom. I didn't know if you guys could still hear me. But <clears throat> uh, I, I was born into a racing family. Uh, it's really all I've ever known. There's been a race car in my garage since I could walk. I was going to the races when I was an infant. Um, uh, my great-grandfather used to take my 
dad to the races. Um, you know, uh, he always wanted to be a, a car owner. He loved the midgets because they raced at Isop Speedway back in the day. And uh, that kind of sparked my father's passion for midget racing, too. So when he got old enough, he uh, got his own car and he became a car owner in the late 70s. And we started racing with the Northeastern Midget Association in the late 70s. And I was just, you know, a little tight running around at the track, uh, um, you know, just being a kid at the, at the races, just like any other kid was who is growing up in it now. Um, I, I just had a love for it all my life. I didn't really get to start driving a race car until I was in <clears throat> my my early 20s. I ran go-karts at 15, which uh, was usually like this, which was uh, late, late by today's standards, really, to get started at driving at 15. But, um, you know, started racing go-karts and ran them for a couple of years. And then my brother and I started competing at our home track at Riverhead Raceway uh, with a stock car. And we did that for a little while. And so because my dad wanted us to get some experience with working on the car, driving the car, dealing with, you know, the grief that goes along with the racing. And um, uh, uh, he wanted us to get a little bit of that experience before he let me or my brother hop in a high speed midget. Um, so that was one of the things that we had to do, uh, which was good for us because it taught us, you know, working in the shop, working on the cars, building a car, fabricating, things like that. So <clears throat> those were, were great lessons from my, my dad uh, back then to get us prepared because the racing, if there's one thing about racing, it, uh, it shows who you are. It shows your character. It shows your metal. Uh, it shows your perseverance and your determination because um, there's a lot of work involved to do this type of sport. And um, it, it, it can also be very rewarding too. And for me, it, it did, it did become rewarding. Uh, like a lot of young kids out there, I wanted to be a driver. Uh, I wanted to, you know, race in the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, just like all these kids out there that are trying to work their way up the NASCAR ladder. Um, the problem with me, of course, we, was, you know, as my dad was a, had a family team, so we, we didn't have huge money and I knew it was going to take a lot of money to, to go racing. Uh, so I knew making it as a driver was not in the stars for me, but I could talk. And that was one thing that uh, I could do, actually, when I would go to the track and talk to some of the race fans that would come up to the car after the races and just chat with them. And uh, eventually it turned into one night hanging out at the local go-kart track on Long Island. And the announcer quit that night after the races. And my brother kind of nudged me and said, you can, you could do that. You could try it. You know, you could, you could talk, you, you should give it a shot. And um, the next week I uh, did the, uh, did the announcing thing for the very first time, started off at a local go-kart track. And um, a lot of people thought that I had an act for it. That was the big thing that uh, I could, I could do the job. So the announcing thing kind of got, you know, the momentum going with that. And then I realized I could show up to the track and make money instead of spend money. <laughs> so that was a, a huge kind of selling point. And then I realized that I, I could travel with my father's racing series and go from track to track announcing and people would start to get to know me and who I was. And I realized that I could possibly move up the ladder doing this. i had always wanted to have a job in racing. I wanted to work in what I loved. So I always wanted to have some sort of job in racing. And um, uh, around, I would say, 20, uh, 23 years old, uh, the, uh, I 
had a few guest appearances on some local television shows up in the Northeast to, just to do some color commentary uh, for some live uh, public access, uh, cable access shows. And producers thought I did very good and thought I should pursue it a little more. So I decided to um, uh, uh, go to college. I decided to um, uh, enroll in college in New England Institute of Technology and went for my degree in television and radio production. And before I had actually, a month before I had graduated, I got hired down south uh, to work on race day on TNN, the original race day, which was a huge thrill for me being 25, 26 years old, being from the Northeast, watching race day, the original race day. I don't know if you guys remember, you may be too young. Yeah, on I, TNN, they used to have the Sunday one hour show called race day and it covered Pat everything. Patterson. Yeah. Pat Patterson, Rick Benjamin was the host for a while. Mm-hmm. Ralph Shaheen was the host for a while. And it was really a news magazine show is what mm-hmm. it was. <clears throat> we spent a whole hour doing features, news stories. And, um, so for me to grow up watching that show as a kid and then getting a phone call from the producers saying, you're going to come work on the show as a production assistant. I mean, to me, I thought Hollywood was calling. It was huge for me. Uh, so yeah, I um, packed up my bags and I moved down south to come down here to, uh, to Charlotte. Uh, the funny thing is, is that I moved down here the day Dale Earnhardt died. Uh, the day Dale Earnhardt died, was killed in the Daytona 500, I was driving a U-Haul van with my father alongside down here, uh, just listening to the race on MRN. And I remember telling my dad while we were driving down, I said, you know what, dad? I said, someday I'm going to interview Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt. And, uh, he, you know, he smiled and nodded, you know, the, the, that, that assurance. And by the time I had gotten to Matt Dillner's house, I'm sure you know that name from the Dale Jr. download and from Lost Speedways. Uh, Matt and I had our friends back home, you know, from Long Island. So we had been friends for a while and he, um, I was staying with him until I found my own place. By the time I had gotten to Matt's house, I knocked on the door and he was white as a ghost. Um, He had told me what happened, that Dale had died. And at seven o'clock the next morning, I'm setting up a camera in front of DEI covering his death. That is insane to go. You get your dream or what you thought was your dream uh, job, you know, getting on TV or being a PA and all and working for this great show that had been around for so many years and like literally the first story you're doing <laughs> as a the biggest story in nascar history yeah it's mm-hmm. that, that day uh, there's certain things like they always say you'll always remember where you were and when when it happened everything and that's for motorsports or you know just in general but that moment you know dale earnhardt's passing and like even for me being an ireton senna guy I remember where I was, what was happening, everything when he passed. And that's like, it's, it's crazy that way because of those people, those great bigger than life characters. And I think that's part of what, you know, you're at that point in life. And for many years, that's been a responsibility of being able to give the story and under and, and give the gravity. I mean, the gravity of Dale Earnhardt's passing. I mean, we still in a lot of ways have not recovered from that in the sport. Uh, A lot of things that have gone on in the past 20 years, I'm sure if Dale Earnhardt was still here may not have happened. 
but you know, it's, it's something to say, I mean, and to go from there and what you've been able to do, I mean, Matt Dillner, of course, you know, dirty Mo and all that with junior. And I mean, you've been able to make all those connections over time and this built up and, you know, my initial uh, knowledge of, of your work was, you know, doing stuff on with the mods with Mav TV or doing stuff with sprints, like a lot of stuff with Ralph Shaheen, who's one of my uh, like motorsport or like broadcasting kind of like hero type people. I mean, I got to talk to him. The I think one of my best moments of my first gig um, getting to be at the racetrack was just shooting the breeze with him on in Pocono back in like 2013, knowing because he's a Tony Stewart, he's close to Tony. We talked about NASCAR. We talked about motorcycles. We talked about, I don't know how many different racing series we talked about in about five minutes. And I was trying not to, you know, uh, crap my pants because I'm talking to Ralph Shaheen. But the fact (laughs) of the matter is, and the fact that I was impressed with his hair too, because his hair hasn't moved since 1989. Um, (laughs) Uh, that also is something that I always try to get that in there. I always, when he always has his posts, I'm like, dude, <laughs> your hair has not moved. It hasn't changed. It doesn't matter having kids, nothing. It literally has not moved. So, as I, as Ralph and I like to joke, it's still the original factory color. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is, and that's a good thing. It means you're doing a good job, and you're taking care of yourself. Now, um, I know that going from from that moment when you're at race day, where did that turn come where you became that person in the front of the camera uh, to go and start doing those, those live hits or doing those stories and eventually being at the racetrack and kind of doing what you've been able to do as a color guy, as a pit road reporter for all the different, like, uh, you know, weekly racing series events and like sprints and midgets, like what you've been able to do over recent years. Well, you know what? <clears throat> it's so funny because there have been so many different instances in that have happened to me in this sport that have had just weird dates attached to it because the first day I had moved down here, Dale Earnhardt died. Uh, the second day on the job at NASCAR was 9-11 for me. Um, I was let go, uh, from NASCAR exactly 11 years to the day of getting hired. Like the dates along the way in my career, I've always had some weird things and weird correlations happen. Um, so it it was kind of weird how it all went down because I I thought we're after moving down here and coming on to race day, I'd made it, you you know, I was going to work my way up on race day and then eventually become an on-air talent and, you know, wow, everybody with my ability and all of that. Um, And it turned out just two months after moving down here, TNN decided to cancel race day because this was just around the time that all of the cable companies uh, were losing their NASCAR coverage because the NASCAR coverage was going to the networks. Fox had bought up everything. So we couldn't even go into the cup garage anymore because they own the rights to all of you know the stuff. Um, so it, it made it very limited for us on race day. And two months after moving down here, Patty Wheeler, Humpy's daughter, who had owned the company, sat us all down and just told us TNN had decided to cancel race day. So after just two months of living down here, I was out of a job. 
I had nothing. Um, I uh, was uh, was scared out of my mind. Um, so here I was, I just moved down here and I'm hundreds of miles away from family, never been away from home before. And now I don't have uh, uh, income coming in. So I had to do like a whole bunch of odd stuff uh, during that year. I uh, was the track announcer at Concord Motorsport Park. I would announce on Friday nights for the Legends Racing. And then I would announce on Saturday nights for the big track. And I think I made a grand total of uh, $85 for the whole weekend. I think it was 35 bucks to announce the legend car races and 50 bucks to call the stock car races. So I would make, you know, an extra $85 a week. Um, uh, and, and it was anything I could do. I would announce at Charlotte Motor Speedway during the summer shootout. I would pick up trash there after the races. Uh, anything that I could do to, to, you know, make a buck to get by. Uh, and, the first year, I'm not going to lie, it was poverty. I, I came really close to, to putting my you know, tail between my legs and going back home because uh, I, I was living in a, a one-bedroom apartment. I didn't have a bed. I slept on a blow-up mattress. There were nights where I was eating just popcorn or just having a bread and cheese sandwich for dinner, just worried about how I was going to pay the bills. Um, so a few months had gone by, and luckily, Wendy Venturini and I had worked together just for those few months at race day. Well, she had gotten hired at NASCAR as a production assistant, and they were looking for another one. <clears throat> she dropped my name to the folks there, and they called me in for an interview, and I was hired on September 10th and um, walked in and you know met everybody on September 10th, and they told me to come on back tomorrow to get my insurance paperwork done and you know HR department and all that to get you into their system. And in the middle of all of that going on, the president of the of uh, the company at the time uh, at NASCAR uh, Images, which was named Tom Grabowski, come walking in the room and said, um, "We need the room because a plane hit the World Trade Center." And I thought that was kind of weird when it happened. And of course, <clears throat> we you know history uh, speaks for itself. But yeah, it was nine uh, eleven. That was my second day on the job. But after that, it happened. Uh, after that had happened, I just kind of settled into my career at NASCAR. I had worked as a production assistant for quite a few years, doing a lot of stuff before the NASCAR banquets, uh, doing some of those live shows that we used to do. So I had a lot of experience learning that. I did everything from shooting 30-second commercials to one-hour specials um, and just started to work my way up the ladder more and more. And uh, how the talent stuff came along was actually kind of, flukish in a way because <clears throat> the problem is is at the time I I looked very young for my age so a lot of places didn't want to hire me because I had looked so young and they were telling me that the they're not going to buy a reporter a kid talking to to adults on camera so I had gotten the rap for a while that I looked way too young I looked way too young uh it just so happened by chance <clears throat> excuse me Pete Pistone from MRN was supposed to do an ASA race in Nashville in 2006. He ended up getting appendicitis. Well, the guy who was producing the races would also produce the Bush North races at NASCAR for um, HDNet when HDNet was around. So I would walk past the room and I'd go, oh, hey, that's Jamie Ovi. Oh, that's Andy Santer. That's Ricky Craven. That's Matt Kobaluk. And they would go, how do you know all these guys? 
And I'm like, because I used to call their races and yada, yada, yada. So I would go right down the line of who was who. And then it would get to a point where the producers wouldn't know who a car was on the track. And they'd go, who, who's that? And I'm like, that's Tracy Gordon. Oh, all right. And so they knew that I knew. <laughs> they also knew that I had a, a short track background. So when the producer who was doing the ASA race got the call that Pete Pistone had appendicitis, they gave me a call and they said, can you, can you do this? You know? And of course I jumped at it and I said, yes, I, I can do it. So uh, 2006, I did my very first pit reporting gig for uh, ASA late models at Nashville. And I had that one time gig, which was cool. And they asked me to do two or three more races that year, which was really good. That was Rick Benjamin's company, Carolina production group. And uh, Rick also does road course races as well as oval track stuff. So Later that year, Rick had got the deal for the um, Playboy Mazda MX-5 Cup. So 2008 rolled around, and we had the Playboy Mazda MX-5 Cup to do. And then he had also gotten ASA late models. And uh, 2008, I like to call the breakout year, really, for my career. Because that was the first year that I did my – I was doing – the, the ASA late model races, I was doing the Playboy Mazda MX-5 Cup races, which were SCCA races. Uh, first time doing road course racing, too, which was kind of different, but a lot of fun. Um, and then later in the year, uh, they needed someone down at Greenville Pickens to do a NASCAR Canaan Pro Series race. So I had put a call in to Speed Channel. I knew someone over there and I said, hey, do you know who's producing it? Give me a chance. I'm doing these races, you know. So they gave me a one-shot deal on Speed Channel. They said, go down, do the race. We'll see how you do. Well, that one-shot deal turned into the rest of the season with the K&M Pro Series. And it just started growing from there. And um, I was still working for NASCAR at the time. So that's what made it kind of weird because my – my on-air career was taking off, but I still had my production responsibilities as a producer and an editor and all of that stuff. When they saw that I could do both, they decided to move the k production in-house at NASCAR rather than sub it out to, to another company. So they just had me do it. So I would actually fly to the races, do the race, carry all of the media back come back to the hall of fame, edit the, you know, at Monday we would edit the race. Tuesday, we would do a graphics pass. Wednesday was the voiceover and Thursday, the show aired. I mean, that's, and then on Friday I was flying out to another race to go do it all over again. So uh, I was for all intents and purposes, a one man band, Uh, you know, I would show up there and get the line cut from the TV crew guys and uh, bring it back to NASCAR and put it together myself. That's, that's just crazy. But it, was, it was cool. I mean, it was really cool. I mean, I got to, besides being in front of the camera, I was behind the camera. So the good part is, is I can produce my own stuff. And that was one of the other strong points that was the reason why I was kept around for so long because they didn't need a pit producer at the track. So that was less budget that they would have to spend on a pit producer because I had been a pit producer before. I know what I'm looking for at the track. I, I can pit produce myself. And that's one of the main things that I bring to the table when I do some of these gigs. Um, so uh, that I think is one of the strongest points that helped me get more and more on-air stuff 
knowing how the races fall together, knowing where to be generic, where not to be, uh, when to be specific and, you know, when to let it breathe because the race is going to be aired two, three weeks down the road or even a month down the road. So it, there's different things that you learn along the way, you know, not to timestamp stuff and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, especially with a lot of those races, you know, the, the way things have become with tape delay and then with social media, I think that's a question in itself. You know, now in the age of social media over the past 10, 15 years, when it really started taking off, how much did that affect your, like you talked about it just now, but has it made you, did you have to adjust the way you did things in general, not only at the racetrack, but then within through your entire process of production and editing to go and produce a product that would still feel organic and, and I guess like it seemed like it would have happened even though it happened a while back and people already know what happened. The funny thing is, is that for my progression in the, in the on-air world kind of happened at the same rate that social media was coming out because my first couple of years I was on camera we had MySpace and I would put on MySpace when we would be on air. And then my, we switched over to Facebook and you start putting <clears throat> uh, posts on there when you're going to, uh, when the show's going to appear or things like that. Social media helped build my fan base tremendously. I definitely think that helped a lot. Um, I was actually lucky for social media to come along when it did in my career. I think it would have taken a lot longer to get uh, a particular fan base built up uh, before social media. However, I also feel like I got into this business 10 years too late because there's been a lot of changing trends uh, along the way in this business. Um, uh, we're seeing a lot of, um, boy, how can, I exp- how can I say this nicely? We're seeing a lot of cover girls on pit road and, um, we are, uh, uh, and don't get me wrong, I have no problem with having female reporters, male reporters, you know, anyone, diverse reporters on pit road. <clears throat> My issue is, is that you're here because you want to be here, not because you are looking for your next gig to get to Good Morning America. That's, that's the thing that kind of irks me. If you're going to be in this business, be in this business. Um, so there've been a lot of little evolutions <clears throat> that have come along, along the way in, you know, being on air and trying to stay on air. It's a very competitive field. You're always calling to see if you can get a gig somewhere. Um, there are times where you feel like you work really hard for something and then it's given to someone else for whatever reason. Uh, and that's one of the tough parts about being on air because it, it's a job of objectivity. Uh, if you have a producer that doesn't like the way you look or the way you sound or, or, you know, thinks that you say this one word wrong, well, they'll bring in someone else. So it's one of those businesses where objectivity has a lot to do with it. Um, you have to just try to be as good as you can in this business, be work with as many people as well as you can. If you're easy to work with and you're good to work with, that's a, a huge part of it too. Um, because like they say in business, it's all about relationships. So if you can get some good relationships going with these networks and producers and well, they're going to drop your name to these people, to other people that can, you know, get your work. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a key being able to meet people and make those connections because in the grand scheme of things like from 
I don't know, like for Josh and I, we've been fans for many years and Facebook was where we were able to make our friendship through the, our fandom of NASCAR. And we'll talk about that in a little, in a little bit here. I mean, I think we'll end on this for this particular portion on uh, your, I mean, I guess we can connect it to where you are now. Now you have your own show and your own pod and you're getting all these great people and you could tell us where we can find your show. I'm not because we're going to quit, but the fact is where we can find you downloads, everything, but then some of the great people that you've been able to have on because you brings it back full circle. I think after all this time and all the craziness that has been this life of motorsports and being in it, that now what you're doing right now, I think is basically bringing it back full circle to where you are with your family and being in the grassroots mold at the same time, connecting us and bringing the stories and the people that really do matter, the legends of motorsports that maybe other people aren't able to make those connections with. Um, tell us about that in regards to what you're doing right now. Well, everybody loves a good story, right? Yeah. And, you know, and you, you listen to these podcasts and some of the things that keep you glued to them are these interesting stories that you hear. Uh, so, I know a lot of people in the business then, you know, we're always sitting around bench racing and sharing a laugh together. And I was thinking, you know, this people need to hear some of this stuff, you know, that's out there. And uh, the idea actually of the podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> I've got a little bit of a scratchy throat. Um, a little bit of the, the, the podcast actually started from a lark really a, a lot of people had wanted me to do podcasts for a while a couple of companies wanted me to do a podcast with them but i hate to say it nobody wanted to pay me uh, you know they want me to do all this work and all this production but nobody wanted to give me a dime for it and uh the way that i looked at it oh, was we know so about it, that right now right <laughs> so the way that i looked at it was if i'm gonna not make any money i'm gonna do it myself that's the way that I looked at it. So uh, I wasn't going to make another company rich. Uh, my thing was, is I'm going to try to build my own brand. So we came up, you know, with the idea, uh, me and a couple of friends of mine who actually used to work at NASCAR together, all former. That's the funny part about the podcast, too, is that everybody that works on the show is a former uh, colleague of mine at NASCAR when we were together. So the creative director who, who was at NASCAR has his own company now. He and I work together on the show. The salesman who was at NASCAR, he helps now doing, you know, production and photography and directing. Uh, and then one of the editors that's there, we work together doing lighting and, and all of that. Um, but the, the idea really just came down from just uh, wanting to do some bench racing and wanting to just chat with people and, and, hear cool stories, you know, hear the fun stuff, hear the things that are interesting, hear the things that make you go, wow. Uh, you know, that, that was the biggest thing. Um, and uh, I'm very lucky that I have a lot of talented friends in the television production business that have brought, <clears throat> excuse me, their knowledge to the table uh, and their production value to the table that makes our show look fantastic. Uh, they really do an amazing job on it. Uh, the show is the Derek Pernasiglio show, uh, catchy original name, isn't it? But, <laughs> uh, it's the Derek Pernasiglio show. It is all over YouTube. We are on, uh, Facebook, Instagram, 
uh, YouTube and um, sound, uh, Spotify, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, all of them can be found at Real DP Show. So that's the uh, that's the handle for it. And it's their Curtis Iglio show. It airs regularly. We do uh, an episode every other week. We have just been starting out and uh, we've had some great guests on the show. We've had Travis Quapple come on with his son, who is also an extremely talented race car driver. Uh, and Travis has got a ton of great stories. Uh, Brett Bodine has come on the show at, who, oh my God, he has done so much over the years. What people don't realize is just the characters that he has worked around all the way from Richie Evans to Haas Ellington to Harry Hyde. I mean, it's just his involvement in the sport has been tremendous. Um, we had another guy on the show by the name of Andy Stapp. And uh, if you're a sprint car and midget guy, you know that Stapp name. Steve Stapp has been a car builder uh, in sprint car racing for years, a former USAC champion. Uh, you know, all the greatest names have driven for him. Everyone from AJ to Andretti, Poncho to Parnelli have driven a Stapp car. Um, he came on the show. Andy, uh, Andy his son came on the show because Andy's a great storyteller and tells the story of how the beast midget chassis came to be because there's a huge, I didn't know that portion story behind the birth of the beast midget chassis. Because if Andy wouldn't, wasn't almost killed in a sprint car, the beast midget chassis never would have come to be because his father actually designed it on a Waffle House napkin, of all things, on a Waffle House napkin, and showed it to Bob East. And Bob East kind of took it and ran with it, and they they went their separate ways, basically the easiest way to say it. And um, the story is all on there. Just check it out. It's all on there. It's the Derek Cernisiglio Show. You can look it up on iTunes, on Spotify, if you want to listen to it, if you want to watch it, it's on YouTube. Uh, we put little clips here and there, highlight clips up on our Facebook page to get to know some of these guests and everything and hear little snippets of uh, stories. And, um, you know, we've also had Reggie Ruggiero on, you know, you know, the modified world. Reggie's a god, and we haven't heard from Reggie in years. And then he pops up on my show. So it was like, oh, everybody wants, you know, to hear from Reggie again and to hear some of those stories. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's just really fun to do. It's a sit-down, intimate conversation with people in racing to just tell a funny story, tell an interesting story, something that made you laugh, cry, made you mad, whatever it may be. And that's, yeah, I, I saw the Reggie Ruggiero, and then, you know, like, that's, there, there's certain names, like, talking about Brett Bodine and all the people. I mean, there's so much that you're able to give us. That's just because of the people you know. But then it also connects back to what, it become, comes back to the passion because the fact of the matter is it's been this passion that's been your whole entire life and all these people that you're connected with and you've been able to bring on are going to continue to bring on passions and having that. And that's what drives it because at the end of the day, it's your deal. And it's part of what we do here too. And hopefully, you know, we, we do our thing. We got our stuff going on, but the fact is it's part of what keeps us going. And like, I have other friends, I'm on other shows and it's what, this thing about racing, man, you can't get rid of it. It's uh, it's a uh, it, it's a crazy uh, it's it's like a uh, it, it's a crazy deal how it can get you, and then it just sucks you right in, and you can't get rid of it. It's amazing. It's something that's been a part of life for so long. 
there's one thing about this sport. It, it just, it gets in your blood. That's the best yeah. way to describe it. You know, yeah. you just, you can't get it out. I mean, there are times when I get so frustrated with this sport and I just want to walk away and I'm like, I'm not going to the racetrack for a while. Then a couple of days later, I find myself putting an old race on or looking yeah. for where, you know, I can catch a race this weekend. So it's, it's one of those things that it just, the, the, you know, the, it always calls you back. <laughs> that's that's what it's all about. Uh, that's what it's all about for sure. All right. So yeah, when when it comes to the all the things that you've been able to do in racing, I mean, it's so cool and all the stories and all the people. But now you're you're in a new role. I mean, now you're a, a promoter and you're a PR guy for a racetrack. And we talked about this <laughs> offline and some of the stresses that came up with that. So kind of tell us about that and what that's kind of been like and how it's kind of opened your eyes to other things that have gone on in this uh, whole racing game. Well, it's a, it's definitely a new experience now to be hated instead of liked. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a new one. That's for sure. My first day on the job, I had a guy telling me that he hopes I get fired. So I was just like, well, uh, welcome to promoting. (laughs) That's pretty but, awful. That's uh, all right. It happens. You know what? I learned really fast. And um, I learned this even doing the on-air stuff that you're not going to make everybody happy. You can do a show and you can do nine out of 10 things right. And someone is going to harp on that 10th thing. Uh, you know, <clears throat> the best you can do is the the best uh, product you can produce. Um And it was funny because how the whole thing happened with Mountain Creek Speedway was that I was just a regular competitor at Mountain Creek Speedway, uh, just like I was at Millbridge for a long time. And when Millbridge, when I was first introduced to Millbridge in 2012, I saw the value of what these outlaw carts were. I saw these things that were go-kart sized vehicles that were pulling speeds as fast as a sprint car. And it was surprising to see how fast these little cars went and how these guys whipped them around. And I sat there in awe at the first time looking at these things, thinking that if you didn't hear the high pitch buzz of the motorcycle engine, you'd swear you're watching a sprint car race. Um, they are wild to watch. They're a lot of fun. And uh, the, when I was first introduced to them, I thought to myself, I got to show these to the world because these things are cool as hell. And I started doing a bunch of uh, YouTube videos from Millbridge Speedway to show everybody, hey, look at this cool stuff that we're doing over here. Because Millbridge was the only track on the East Coast that was hosting this kind of type of racing. This was a, a type of racing that was born out in California, in Northern California, of all things. So it was very rare to have something like this out here on the East Coast. Um, just seeing the racing and seeing how good it was. And then the big thing was how affordable the race cars were. I mean, you can go racing with something high speed, real fast. It's going to give you a lot of experience racing behind the wheel for under six grand, which was, I thought was a huge selling point. That was one of the, one of the other reasons why I thought it would be great to get involved in this type of racing. Uh, So I had did the, media and video stuff out at Millbridge for the longest time. And when I had joined up with Speed Sport, we brought the television cameras into Speed Sport to televise some races there for the first time too, which was pretty cool. I can uh, 
always have the bragging right of being the first guy to put outlaw kart racing on television for the first time. Uh, so to be able to show it to the world was really cool. Um, at a few years had gone by and uh, Millbridge had picked up speed 51. I went back to racing there, just driving my car. And then this other track down the road called mountain Creek speedway opened up <clears throat> and mountain Creek is basically a track on a farm. It's really what it is. The, the, the track is owned by local farmers in that area that owned a bunch of land and they decided to build a track on it because they like go-kart racing and they have fun doing it. Uh, when I went there for the first time, I looked at the place, which is set back in the woods. You literally have to drive through a cow pasture to get to the track. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really cool though. I mean, it is, it is an auto racing field of dreams. It, it oh, is. And, uh, the owners that were there at Mountain Creek saw what I had done with Millbridge and they had wanted me to come on there for a while. And I didn't want to because I felt like I had gotten burned. Uh, so I was a little apprehensive uh, in, in my previous experience. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't want to do it for a while. So I had just raced at Mountain Creek. I ran, you know, raced there as a weekly competitor and they would ask me my advice on how to do stuff here and there. And I would give it to them. And uh, finally, uh, over this past winter, they had called me and told me, we're doing improvements out here. We really want to go full tilt. We want to get serious. We need somebody who knows, you know, most aspects of racing. Um, they called me up. They had asked me a couple of times to come, to come out and check out what they were doing. I went out to the track one day and I saw the construction crews working and the, the, the pits that were getting leveled. They were expanding the pits, paving part of the pit area. Uh, building observation decks. They were ripping up the track surface, putting a new one down. They were adding banking. I mean, they were, they were making a good effort, a good, strong effort. And when I saw what was going on, I was really impressed. And I thought that this is not outside of what I've done in the past. Um, so I really just thought to just go back to my media uh, playbook you know and just start doing the basics getting them up to speed on social media getting them video exposure just having you know pictures out there um anytime they made an improvement at the track i posted it on social media because race fans love to see when tracks are being built or tracks are being renovated or repaved because they know that those are benefits that are going to be for them so they like seeing that stuff. And the other thing that it does also is it creates a buzz. It gets people talking. So you're planting that seed in people just from doing those Facebook posts. And they, the, the buzz starts. And um, uh, uh, I talked to the track and they had asked me about coming in and, and being a part of what they have going on. Uh, and I'll be honest, it has been an incredible experience. It really has. Working for Adam and Rebecca Stewart is fantastic. They are salt of the earth people. They are really good people. Uh, anytime I have told them we need this, they have no problem getting it. Uh, I told them we needed, if they wanted to start getting into the mainstream of stuff, we needed to get cameras. They bought cameras. We needed microphones. They bought microphones. Uh, I mean, we wanted, uh, you, you know, a, a platform to be able to shoot with. We got that, you know, so that's the great part is that Anything that I have asked them for, they have accommodated. And very soon, we're going to be going to live stream. So we're going to be having live streaming at the track as well. So it's just, uh, like I say, it's just a, another brick in the house 
uh, that Mountain Creek Speedway built. Uh, so uh, we're hoping by this time next year to have a uh, complete up and running program that is, uh, that is going for all the fans to enjoy. Uh, one of the problems that we had run into uh, being uh, that we are the track that we are is we're only 30 minutes down the road from Millbridge, but mm. Millbridge, Millbridge is the big game in town. So what we had to do was figure out our schedule for the year. So being that Millbridge is the big game in town, we wanted to let everybody get their schedules done. And then we took a look at what dates were left. So when we looked at what dates were left, when I came in, I said, Fridays didn't work for you guys. They tried it. Saturdays didn't work because they were competing against Millbridge. I said, let's do flat carts on Saturdays because no other track around here runs flat carts. So we'll do Saturdays because they can come out. And then on Sundays, we'll have the outlaw carts. And what we'll do is we'll run on Sunday afternoons to give it a chance where the parents can get home at a decent hour. So we start, we open our gates at one o'clock in the afternoon. We practice rolls at three o'clock and then we get right into our practice and then we get right into our program for the day. By the time everything is said and done, you're usually packing up and going home around seven o'clock at night before the sun goes down. So it's great for all the parents involved. They get a chance to go racing uh, on the weekend and they can get their kids back and get them ready for school for Monday. So, so far we have experimented with doing it this way. It's been the first year of doing it. It's been a pretty good success. Uh, every week, the car counts are growing. The, uh, the new faces we're seeing, which is a positive as well. And we're just um, hoping that people just start spreading the word and talking about how great Mountain Creek Speedway is. And hopefully we'll be able to build it up to prominence and have uh, the micro sprints in there and uh, all that stuff, just like Millbridge has one day. Right. So, you know, obviously you're a self-sufficient guy in producing your media and stuff, but like, what is the challenges, I guess, with producing content for these tracks, promoting and um, like what are the difficulties that you face trying to promote, especially with the different forms of social media, you know, now we're changing and evolving from Facebook and um, YouTube. And now we're going to uh, things like even like TikTok and Reddit and uh, all those different platforms. So talk about like um, the, I guess, challenges that you face trying to promote racing to a younger audience and expanding it from, you know, the current demographic that we have now. The biggest challenge, believe it or not, is time. Uh, all of these things take time. You can have your post that you want to do for your upcoming event and you have to make sure that you have it all right and complete for Facebook. And then there's different parameters for Twitter and there's different ones for Instagram. Uh, uh, so it really like one simple post that you think you're going to put up could take upwards of 30 minutes to an hour sometimes because you want to make sure you've got the right links in there. You want to make sure the right people are tagged in there. <clears throat> so sometimes that is very time consuming. Um, and it going back to that time again, being that I am a one man band, there is one day that I have to dedicate to editing and there's another day that i have to day dedicate to being on the phone all day calling people to see if they had a good weekend at the track calling a sponsor making sure that they were happy uh letting another sponsor know hey you know your night at the races is coming up and this is the date we want to do it on uh so the biggest thing that is is the challenge is time being that you're one person if i had an assistant it would definitely help along the way but um uh, it, like, uh, it, it's really tough when one person is doing a lot. 
Yeah, and it's part of what I guess for everything that you've been or a lot of the things that you've been able to do over this whole career <clears throat> and in racing. I mean, it's uh, the more you're able to do, I guess, the more indispensable you are. But at the same time, the kind of the grind that it can be at times, especially when and you talked about this. It's like, well, you're hated now and in a sense, just jokingly, but you know, because you can make the right, and we were talking about rules. Um, and I think it was something that is a great thing for you talking about like modifieds, just as using that as an example, the tour type modifieds, as we know them, the wheel and modified tour and how there's all these different segments. And you're also talking about Millbridge and how that's the track outlaw card. We're going to talk about Larson and all that when he goes over there, but how do the rules uh, affect car count and in your time and over the years of all this coverage and all the different series you've covered, how have rules and certain sanctioning bodies affected, you know, not, not only the quality of the product, but the people that are able to compete because of manipulating things, probably you're taking, putting, being a little too heavy handed, let's say. It's affected the unity of the sport. That's one of the biggest things. It's affected the unity and the people working together because you'll get, excuse me, you'll get a a late model series over here that has certain rules for their carburetor or their engine or their weight rules or whatever it may be. Then you'll have the other late model series over here that allows this type of spacer and these type of rules for theirs. And at the end of the day, when you put the hoods on and you look at the car side by side, they look like a late model. You know, it's, it's one of those things where a little unity and working together amongst these series would help so much because you would see car counts explode. And you talk about that with outlaw carts and uh, I mean, what kind of car counts do you have right now? And what is like a capacity that you would have at your racetrack compared to say Millbridge or other racetracks that would be competing in the same series you have? Well, one of the things that I tried to stay with was that unity that we just talked about. So what we did over at Mountain Creek is we adopted everything that Millbridge does. That way someone can go to both tracks and race at both tracks and not get confused by rules or format or anything else. So we made sure that whatever rules run over at one track, they're good for over here. That way <clears throat> people can go back and forth. They know that they're going to be, this is the rule for this place and it's the rule for this place. There's no having to alienate people or anything like that. The one issue that we do run into uh, at, at Mountain Creek, we, uh, we, our car counts, I wouldn't say are competitive to Millbridge's. Millbridge gets a fantastic car count. They really do. Um, but one of the things that helps Millbridge too is they get a lot of the NASCAR crowd that wants to go racing with their kids in the midweek. So you get a lot of those guys that are working for a team that can get off in the middle of the week and go racing with their child. Usually on Saturday or Sunday, they're working with a truck team, Xfinity team, a cup team. So they can't be at the track. We do have the luxury though of having some of the NASCAR tie-in that still shows up on Sunday, like, excuse me, I'm sorry. Someone like uh, um, Brexton Bush, Kyle Bush's son. Okay. They are trying to get Brexton as many laps and as, you know, they're trying to get his, you know, racing career going. 
So one of the things that they will do is Kyle will be at the races, but Samantha will be there with Brexton and Kyle has, you know, his father, who is one of the mechanics, they're working on the car and they've got maybe someone from KBM who is working on his car that's over there, helping him get up to speed. So you'll, you will have some of those situations. Um, uh, Wyatt Miller is another one. Wyatt Miller is the grandson of Dale Earnhardt. It's L.W. Miller's son. It's uh, um, Kelly's son as well, her youngest son. He's racing out there at Mountain Creek. So they see the value of being able to come out there and race and run as many weeks as, and nights as they can. Um, we do have, if the driver or the crew chief can't be there, there's usually someone from their family that is like we, like Chad Johnston. He's a cup crew chief. Um, you know, his kid was racing there this weekend. He may not have been there, but he had other people or family that was there working on the car and that kind of stuff. Matt McCall, same thing. Crew chief for Kurt Busch. He couldn't be there, but Matt McCall's best buddy and his wife are there and they're getting his son racing, you know? So like, there's those kind of things that are going on. Uh, we have talked to guys like Clint Boyer and Kyle Larson, obviously. And you do have those fathers that want to be there when their sons race. Same thing with them. Whenever uh, little Owen Larson runs, Kyle is always there. Kyle can't be at our track on Sundays because he's running the cup car. Same thing with Clint. Clint's in the booth doing the NASCAR stuff. So he wants to be at the track when little cash is racing. So there are those little, little things, little differences that we run into between the two tracks, but I'll be honest, our, our, um, our fields are just a little bit smaller than, uh, than Millbridge's. Uh, but some of the divisions, we actually have more car count, like our open division. Our open division, we had nine cars this past week. Uh, you know, so uh, Millbridge had seven. I mean, granted, not huge numbers for either track, but, you know, sometimes we'll fluctuate. You know, we'll have one more than another in, in a certain division. It happens. But their main divisions, like the box stocks and the beginner box stocks, I mean, they'll get 20 to 25 cars over here at Millbridge and we'll get 15, you know, so the numbers aren't off by, by much, a little bit less, but enough to have some great fields and some really competitive racing. And I guess we can take it from the fact we talked about a lot of, you gave some big names there in terms of drivers and crew chiefs and all that and kind of give us the you know you have the experience you've driven race cars and it's i'll never be able to drive anything like you've driven probably unless i lose a lot of weight and um, probably cut a few other things out in my life i figure josh is probably more likely because he's got the sim deal going but tell us what it's like you know, you're able to give us that, you know, seat of the pants experience because you've done it. And what is it like, not only in an outlaw car, but in some of the cars, what else that you've driven over your lifetime and what was like the best thing that you've driven It's the craziest thing that's happened? Well, you know, kind of give us some stories about the driving side, because that's another piece that I've always impressed with with like guests that are able to do every, that are have done all these different things. And you're yet another example of that. Well, I always said that being in the booth is the second best seat in the house. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Um, the, for the best seat in the house is right behind that wheel. 
without a doubt. Uh, it really, it's no different than guys that go hang gliding or skydiving or they go bungee jumping. They're looking for that thrill. Um, and that's really what it is too. Um, I, I just love driving a car. I just love the, the, the feeling of racing. Uh, I enjoy that horsepower and um, that whole feeling of you being belted into the car and secure it in. And it's that feeling of that, that man and machine become one type of thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I love is when you come off a corner in a race car and you put your foot down and you just see yourself getting pinned back in the seat more and more because of that horsepower that's pushing you back there. You know, that's one of the wildest things uh, on the planet. <clears throat> and then I had spent most of my career on pavement. I mean, I had had over, over 20 years racing on pavement and then just, uh, what was it seven, seven years ago, uh, 2012, uh, eight, oh, actually eight or nine. Uh, wow. I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, tried dirt for the first time and fell in love with it. I just, I was like, wow, this is so cool because dirt, I, I definitely feel has made me way better of a driver. Uh, I think that dirt racing definitely increases a driver's ability. It increases, it increases their, their feel of a race car as well. Uh, I have seen it benefit drivers in so many different ways and shapes and forms. Most notably, uh, my nephew, Michael. My nephew has been racing quarter midgets for the last couple of years. And uh, I've been kind of pressuring him to get on dirt because dirt just makes more of a driver out of you. And um, uh, a couple of years ago, I bought him a 270 micro sprint. He went racing in, uh, uh, in Pennsylvania with the Pennsylvania Posse, racing at like Linda's Speedway, Shellhammers, Greenwood Action Track, uh, uh, Greenwood Valley. I mean, um, just all of those places that, you know, the, the guys who move up the rank and run in sprint cars do it. So he had run a season in micro sprints and then this past year has now moved up to racing NEMA lights. So now he has moved back onto pavement, but his learning curve has gone straight up because of his time on dirt. You know, he has felt the car sideways underneath him. He knows what it's like when the car gets yawed out or, or something like that. And um, he, he gets that feel of more horsepower to him, which I think is beneficial. And uh, what, a prime example of it and what I think was a real disproving factor was looking at one of his in-car cameras from Thompson earlier this year. He had never raced at a track as big as Thompson before. The biggest thing he was on was a quarter mile. So he went out there, I mean, and was flying around the place at 120, 130 miles an hour, like it was nothing and hit some oil, got the car sideways and all crossed up and everything at 130 miles an hour, saved it and kept on going like it was nothing. And I really think a lot of that was attributed to the dirt experience, just being able to slide the car around and put your foot back in it and bang on and go. So um, it, it, I really think whoever it is helps. Look at someone like Carson Quapple. Uh, I mean, he started out as a young kid on dirt and now he is just so talented and so fast in anything you put him in. And that goes for a midget on dirt to a super late model on pavement. And you could, and it kind of goes with a lot of the great drivers of 
you know, from before we were around to the guys and girls that we've been able to watch to where we are right now. You can think of it, it, whether it's the, like you think about Dave Blaney is a great example where he did dirt, he drove dirt and different types of cars. And then he went and drove stock cars for years and made a career and made a life so that, you know, he could take care of his family. And of course, now we have Ryan, uh, you have guys that want to go and race other forms of racing or run on dirt because they hear about it, whatever. It's kind of like Kenny. I think a perfect example is probably like Kenny Schrader. How, and I think we'll kind of, and like, who are some of those guys that to you or girls that have kind of been able to bat, like, show, like racecraft? You're somebody that has been in this for so many years. You've had you, your family. Like, who are some of the people that have been like, their their uh, their car crap their ability to drive a race car be able to handle certain things have impressed you not only driving but also how they were to you and how you were able to work with them over your time as a reporter and a producer director i uh, some of the drivers that i see that have really impressed me are some some young kids actually like someone like chase dowling uh chase dowling I found uh, very fascinating to listen to on the radio during practice for tour events. If you ever get a chance, listen to him. And he's a young kid in his 20s, but he knows exactly what to feel and exactly what he's looking for in the car. Like I listened to him during practice one time. I think it was at South Boston. He went out, he did a run. He was like, okay, change this and this. And and this is what I want to do to the car. Okay. And he goes out and he comes back in. He goes, now lower the bar and do these changes because this is what I want to feel when we get later in the race on a later run. So they went out and they did it like, like they were doing all sorts of stuff that you would hear somebody who was probably 20 years older than him. That was probably 20 years wiser uh, coming out of the mouth of this young 20 year old. And it was really impressive to hear him be able to crew chief the car from the seat at such a young age. And uh, another one is what we just talked about, Carson Quapel. Um, he's another one of those kids that can not only drive the car well, but he can get out of the car, grab wrenches and work on it. Uh, you don't see that a lot nowadays with some of the kids that are in the garage area. So I am really impressed with those guys that are knowledgeable enough with the car, are good fabricators, and they can hop in and make it go fast. Um, another one that comes to mind, believe it or not, too, is Corey LaJoy. Corey LaJoy is uber talented and not just behind the wheel driving. He is an incredible fabricator. He is a smart setup man. Uh, before he ventured into driving in the Cup Series, you know, RCR tried to groom him to be a car chief, but he wanted to pursue his driving. Um, he, he's another one of those kids that can crew chief the car from the seat, and which I think is invaluable nowadays and it speaks to his grind and you know the stacking pennies a whole bit you know and coming from up here and having to go and race under the shadow you know having multi-generations of his family being up here and racing and of course his dad being a legend and to be able to go and build your own way and now be in a position where he might have finally found a place where he could actually have stability but there's very few people that are like that in the garage area, as you said. I mean, 
there are certain drivers that are there that are literally just there and you're going to program them and tell them what to do versus Corey who could get out and do what he needs to do to go and work on the car because it's necessary. I mean, I think that's part of what's wrong. And I know we were talking about that too, about kind of the changes and things that have we've moved away from what made racing racing. And you, you brought up a, a statement that I live my life by, uh, which is the kiss method before we went on air. Uh, I mean, I think that kind of, I think this is how we'll, um, and I don't want to, I, I know I've taken, we've taken a, a, over an hour of your time. So uh, I know you probably want to get to sleep. You have work and all. So we will leave it on this. Um, I mean, what are some of the things that I, we, we opened it as grinds our gears. Like when it comes to racing and some of the places you've been over the years, like what are some of the things that, that are being done or, or, that you would say are not like are, are, are not positive really that are not good for us you know as passionate race fans let alone you know the lay person which i think a lot of these companies and a lot of these organizations are trying to think that they can get the the biggest thing <clears throat> is the economics of it uh you have to keep it affordable you can't let rules and certain regulation, you know, regulations get out of hand. Um, a, a prime example is like uh, engines. You know, you have to keep it affordable. If you look at something like the NEMA midgets compared to NEMA lights, the NEMA lights show up sometimes with almost double the amount of car count that the NEMA midgets show up with. Why? Because the engines are probably about thirty to forty thousand dollars cheaper. I mean, that's, that's really it. Uh, <clears throat> the same thing with these open races that are going on compared to the modified tour races. These teams don't have the money to do all these little finite upgrades to be able to race on the tour, but they can show up at some of these open competition events with a car that is just as good uh, and be able to race with marquee tour drivers. And they're getting more money out of the, out of the deal too. So they're spending less money with the, the, the red tape stuff, they're able to make more money on the back end. So it, the economics of it is huge. You have to find ways to keep it affordable. Now, granted, racing is an expensive business. It is. But you also don't need to get crazy with the spending, with all the bells and whistles. You don't need you know, you don't, you don't need the titanium and the carbon fiber sometimes or the aircraft stuff, you know, that that's just way, way crazy out of hand spending. Um, and the other thing too, is the whole monkey see monkey do philosophy too, because that's what also gets a lot of people spending. Uh, one guy shows up with a certain engine that costs $15,000 or $20,000 and they go out and win with it. Well, the guy that's next to him, who's got a, a, a wallet goes, Hmm, I need to get that too. And then the next guy does it. And the next guy does it. But now you've got guys who are buying high dollar engines compared to guys that don't have high dollar engines. The guys that don't have the high dollar engine sit back and they go, well, I'm not going to go race because I'm not going to bring a knife to a gunfight. So right there, the economics have just killed your car count. Car count, I think, like with NASCAR, they talk about charters and they talk about the spending and all. And I think that is its own right. 
is probably uh there's that's a show for another time another day just to get into the economics of the big uh three series let alone tour type modifieds and everything as we've gone along or arca for that matter which the economics there i don't know how especially the trucks and arca or two that i don't get and it's i don't know how they're still up and running outside of like getting back with sponsorship like marcus limonis and menards and all that because it, it doesn't the economics of it doesn't make any sense and the amount of cars that you get relative quality to what it used to be on um, the west with the what was the uh, winston west and then the bush north series it's like night and day i mean it's it's basically the young guns the kids of the racers racing there or you have somebody who has a check checkbook racing and these cars are not i mean the chassis and the bodies are out of date too. I mean, that's a whole other thing, but it's a no, it's, it, it, it's a no brainer that if you want to keep the car counts up, you got to keep it affordable. You, you gotta, you just, you have to, you got to find different ways to keep it affordable. Um, and granted, everybody knows whenever you change a rule, people are going to spend money, but you, there needs to be something, some things put in at the inception, right from the start where, people can realize, okay, we're going to save money by doing something like this. Uh, I have always said for the longest time, and I will still say it till the day I die, that you will keep the car counts if you keep it affordable. And we will uh, leave it at that. Derek Pernasiglio, <laughs> we thank you for coming on the Grip Strip podcast, giving us uh, an hour and a half of your time, basically. Um, the walking out here um you can give us one more uh promo of uh where we can find you on social media where you can find your show where we can find you working during the week the whole bit where can we go and find derek bernasiglio uh well you can check out my podcast uh on youtube at real dp show we are also on facebook instagram twitter and youtube at real dp show you can look up the audio portion of the podcast on iTunes and Spotify at the Derek Pernasiglio show. So those are all the places that you can uh, catch up with me uh, this year. As far as television reporting goes, I will be pit reporting for the Power Eye Lucas Oil Midgets. So I'm really excited about doing that. We've done a couple of races with them this year. I absolutely love working with the Mav TV folks. They are such an enjoyable group of people to work with. They value, uh, they value your abilities and what you can do. And uh, that's what makes one of the things so enjoyable about being with that group. Uh, I was very blessed to be able to work with them again. I was, uh, I, I did off-road racing last year with them and they liked me enough to have me back for some, some midget racing. And uh, that is my, one of my original loves and my passions. So I've been very lucky to grow up around midgets and modifieds and also be able to make it my living. And it's great to have somebody who who's been in it his whole life and has that passion and knows these people going back from very little to now being in it now, because that's genuine. That's the kind of people that are missing. And you mentioned it earlier. Um, we're missing those kind of people in the sport and there are, it's, necessary and somebody who's a jack of all trades like you are and you make it look the the thing is you make it look simple but the amount of work that you do 
the amount of work that you do and the fact I'm glad that it looks that way at the way and the fact that your hair color is the same same as you and ralph have the same hair color is tells about how great you guys are and um and for us both josh and i i i mean for myself i'm grateful that um you gave us time no, number one but number two that you're out there and you're able to do so many things uh for us because we need guys like you still keeping on grinding for us because this is why we still have this passion we're going to keep on talking about it because of the work you do so we appreciate you derek and hopefully one day we'll be able to do some bench racing talk about some crazy modified midget stories or whatever uh that aren't on your show or something on another time when we have a little more time but thank you so much man uh josh wow. have anything yeah i mean just uh glad to listen to your stories and just your background and and everything and you know really just enjoy how you know self-sufficient you are and just you know how much of a hard worker you are and just your story and it really just really enjoy like your media um story and um how you've kind of evolved into a promoter as well thank you i i really appreciate it and um you, before i go i do have to say that uh the the business is evolving it really is. Um, we have gotten to the point now with doing media in auto racing, where unless you have a very prominent position, you have to look at this uh, for all intents and purposes as side money. Um, everybody has got, or, or you need to have some sort of side hustle going on right now, because uh, we have gotten to a point where it. It, it, the world of being able to produce a race and do the job has become smaller with the advent of the computers, the way the cameras are now. I mean, you can make a television show on your laptop. So the, the business of racing media has evolved so much. When some of the kids that are trying to get into this sport nowadays are asking me what to do, one of the biggest things that I tell them is have a side gig. You need to have some sort of side gig because uh, at any point, the bottom can drop out. <clears throat> uh, last year that happened with me with COVID, I was on track to have one of the biggest years in my career. I had all of the ARCA races lined up, all the modifieds, all the E-Series races. I had, you know, off-road, midgets. Everything was supposed to be going in my way. And then COVID hit. And in a matter of just uh, five weeks, I lost my job. I lost family members. I lost, you know, all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> which now has forced the business of auto racing to shrink. Um, you don't see as many pit reporters on pit road anymore. They're not at the track as many days as they used to be. So the ability to have a full-time position in this business has become smaller and smaller. So if there's any advice I can give to someone like you guys or anything like that, that are trying to get into this business is, have a, another source of income because unfortunately the business has gotten so small now that you can't sustain a livable income like you used to. So like for me, I have this going on, but I also have a property company that I purchased a few years ago. So that is for all intents and purposes, my retirement plan. So that's one of the things that I'm doing right now to be able to, you know, uh, build a foundation and a living for myself. Um, do it, the do it because you love it. 
<laughs> that's one of the things. Definitely do it because you love it. Uh, but also have a contingency plan because contingency plan, uh, especially in this business, is always good because you never know when your job goes away. Plenty of good advice, great advice, honestly. And I think we talked about it. I, all that right there is, is, and it's part of what it is. I mean, we both work full-time jobs and we do this on the side because it's our passion. We love talking about racing and whatever happens or comes from it. We've met a lot of good people like yourself and uh, you know, that's what I think it's about, you know, in the end, the bench racing and being able to talk racing is what gets us through because the product may not be as good in certain areas, but it keeps us going. And I think one other thing you brought up before we even went on, and it's a thing that I live by, and it's made my life a whole lot easier, even with some of the stuff that's gone on. The KISS method really is, it's, it's the way to do things in a lot of areas. And it would probably simplify life a lot more if a lot more people and a lot more things ran by that method. So um, for somebody who runs by that, and for somebody like yourself, who's been able to run by that, and have like this amazing career and continue to have this amazing career. Uh, we thank you for everything you're doing for us as fans and in general for what you're doing for racers as a racer. Um, and uh, good luck this weekend. And as the summer goes on with your, with your track and also with all the gigs, we'll look forward to seeing you on Mav TV, your podcast and looking forward to seeing some of the other cool drivers and, and characters of the sport that we'll be able to take in um, on the Derek Pernasiglio show. So thank you so much, Derek, for your time. Guys, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And we've been on what, like almost two hours now. It doesn't even feel like two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think we could go on for a while. I would want to. And I think that's probably what we're going to do. Eventually we'll just probably just commit an episode that way. But uh well, well here's probably. the here's the beauty part being that you're in podcasting now return guests yeah <laughs> yeah but hey i also got to thank you guys for making me episode number 61 that means a lot you know being yeah. a richie evans being a richie evans fan loving him you know oh yeah thank you yeah so it worked out with like we had we have richie evans you have roger maris because we talk sports on here too so we got those are two great the number 61 is a good number for sure so I'm glad it worked out that way. We got the the greatest modified driver, one of the greatest race car drivers ever lived. And we got Derek on here to go. We got you on here to talk about it. So I have a question, though. Uh, what what kind of race car does Roger Maris drive? Nah, I don't know. <laughs> I got you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the funny thing, too. I, I know nothing, nothing about any other sport. I have no idea what offsides means or holding like i when a bunch of my friends start standing around in a circle and talking about march madness or whoever won the game yesterday i back right out of the conversation because i just, i don't know stick and ball sports it's the yeah. funniest thing because ralph shaheen and the rest of the guys at speed sport they always bust my chops and you know they always ask me you know do you know who joe namath is <laughs> <laughs> things like yeah. that yeah, that's yeah. Well, uh, it's, yeah. it's Ralph. I mean, whatever he he can get away with that sort of stuff when you when you look like him and you have that kind of hair. Uh, that that's the whole thing. Like, I need to have him on the show, honestly, just to bust him between the stories about Tony and his hair. 
I think we could spend uh, probably a good hour, hour and a half. There's a couple other people I would love to have that are just people that I've looked up to um, and respect just like you. But, you know, it'll be mostly about because I have an obsession with mullets. So the fact is, it would be a thing about like Ralph Shaheen and his, you know, like it's a bad tangent. But the fact of the matter is like it, it becomes things about jokes about hair. So, yeah, because I have Rico, I have two Rico Abreu mullet hats. So I am, <laughs> a, you know, full on. I have my Rico Abreu car over there. I got my right because yeah. I. He's my spirit person because he's just an unbelievable race car driver. So, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you bring him up because he's a prime example of some of the great opportunities that this sport has allowed for me. Because not only have I gotten to interview Rico in my career, not only in the dirt scene, I was also the guy who interviewed him for his one and only NASCAR win in the Kane and Pro Series, and then also got to race with him on dirt. So it's like, how often do you interview some of these guys? And then a couple of nights later, you're banging wheels with them on, on dirt. So I've been very blessed in those aspects to work with some of these guys and then also been able to get to race with them as well. Yeah. And he's just a cool dude. I, I would love to hang out with that guy, honestly, because it would just be he, just to just Yeah. He's another one. Like I think all these things and the crazy part is I think a lot of them all connect with smoke which makes sense because I'm a diehard there. So then Josh knows that for many years. So they're all sprint car guys. They flock exactly. together. Exactly. <laughs> You're exactly right about that. So we'll definitely re we'll arrange. We'll try to figure out, I have to figure out all the great modified numbers so then we can arrange it so that you'll be on with another uh, episode uh, with the famous modified number uh, for sure. So thank you so much, Derek, for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Absolutely. Thank you so much, man. Um, with uh, in regards to the rest of the show, because how do we like well, this? How do you transition from uh, talking to somebody who is as uh, accomplished and does so many things as Derek and then get into talking about <sighs> the rest of the stuff? Well, we kind of have to uh, the Indy Grand Prix. Uh, took place last week as a precursor to Indianapolis 500 um, with Renus VK, the winner in his first career win, uh, the first uh, driver from the ne Netherlands since Robert Dernbos won in 2007 in the CART series. And previous to that, his mentor, of course, Harry Lunatic, uh, went and won two Indy 500s and won, I think he won four CART races total or three, three races in cart and anyone, them IRL races as well. So, um, Josh, uh, I mean, it was basically a battle between Renus VK and Roman Grosjean on uh, Saturday. Uh, but you know, for VK, he's been in the road to Indy. He's been up there for many years and he struggled at times last year as a rookie, but this whole, that whole weekend, he was one of the fastest, if not the fastest car. And he went out there and won. And his owner puts a big emphasis on Indianapolis, obviously, because it's home. Uh, it's a big deal for him, for Renus VK, uh, on Saturday to get his first career win. Right. I mean, with Renus VK winning his first career race, I mean, I don't think either of us picked him or really expected him to win that one. And I think also for Romain Grosjean also, uh, you know, we didn't expect him to be that fast either. And 
for I mean for VK obviously it's his first win and that does give him and his team a little bit of um, I guess momentum so to speak to um, qualify and put the car on the pole I guess this weekend at Indianapolis and then the next weekend uh, prepare uh, the race car as they run the Indy 500 but I mean I think for for both of those guys I mean that really gives them both a, a lot of confidence I mean I think for for Grosjean like um, you know, he came from Formula One and was kind of, you know, on the looked like to be on the downside of his career because obviously the uh, Haas F1 didn't really work out for him, wasn't really running any great cars or anything. And then uh, to end his career like he did uh, with the crash at Bahrain, I mean, that wasn't uh, the way you want to see any driver uh, end his stint in Formula One. But to put the car on pole and have that type of pace uh, and then lead a significant amount of the race. I mean, I, I think definitely that gives him a, a confidence boost, but you know, something else like we talked about with Derek, like the exposure level that I mean, if you look online on YouTube and you look at the amount of views that qualifying got, I mean, I think it, when I last checked, it got like 240,000 views on YouTube for uh, IndyCar qualifying. And I, I think, you know, normally it doesn't get that amount, uh, that amount of views on YouTube. And I think that that's something that helps. So if Romain Grosjean is able to be more successful on at least on the road course races, and then maybe he attempts uh, oval racing as well. Um, I think that can definitely bring in some more uh, exposure to the series and definitely help, uh, you know, grow the fan base uh, and get more like F1 fans, more Romain Grosjean fans um, who aren't fans of him already in IndyCar uh, to follow the sport uh, more, more often. And, not just in the Indianapolis 500, but, you know, the entire season with uh, the IndyCar series there. Yeah. And I mean, it's a part of the deal with Jimmy Johnson being there after all these years and everything he's accomplished in his illustrious career to go and change his whole entire mode from NASCAR ovals and big heavy stock cars to drive an IndyCar and then driving LMP sports cars too you know like and and how that is they're getting more fans in the indycar series because of jimmy johnson and all the activation carvana is doing than i think any other sponsor has done in indycar period they're getting more connections now with renus vk as a young gun the netherlands they have a great passion of course of max verstappen in formula one well renus vk is that kind of talented you know raw driver that could really take off and be a big time star in this series because he's another great driver from the road to Indy and they have history of drivers being able to compete then you have Roman Grosjean who has a Formula One connection and other great Formula One driver or other drivers from Formula One have come here of course Nigel Mansell most famously um in recent in the last like whatever 30 years I guess um, of course, Mario being Mario and AJ, I mean, he didn't run Formula One, but he ran sports cars and all that. But there have been Formula One drivers that have come here. Emerson Fittipaldi. Yeah. I mean, he won two world championships, comes to IndyCar as a second career, basically, and then goes and wins championship, wins two Indy 500s, the whole bit. It's something that those that there is a connection. And I think there is an appreciation. Uh, I mean, some of the shows that I am one of the shows on, we've had Tom from the monkey seat. He does IndyCar uh, cover. He covers the IndyCar series too. And I think there's more of a connection this year because Roman Grosjean's moved over 
Um, you know, you have uh, Pietro Fittipaldi who's going to try to uh, run the Indy 500 uh, for the 51 car. Um, you have other drivers. There's always that connection. You have Kevin Magnuson, who was at practice uh, today or yesterday, I think, for Ganassi, and he was Grosjean's teammate. You know, and how exciting it is and how much happier they are. And I think that's fundamentally what it is. I think it's more um, organic and it's more like what they did well before they were in the corporate, uh, corporatized world of Formula One. And it's more well, organic. Well, what you also have, too, is less of that corporate multinational might behind them as well. That's the yeah. other thing that you have to remember, the, the pressure on the world stage is tremendous compared to just racing in the United States. So that that's the other thing you have to remember. You, you're not only dealing with social media and media from one country, you're dealing with it from all of them. Uh, but uh, one of the things that you guys brought up, which I thought was very interesting too, uh, was the, the streaming numbers and how many people were tuned in on YouTube. And I think in another five to 10 years, you're not going to see IndyCar, NASCAR as the top level motorsport in the world. What I think you're going to see is what becomes the top level motorsport based on streaming numbers, because that I think is going to speak way more volumes over television ratings. And television ratings have been dropping for a while now. Uh, the, you think about the peak of the NASCAR boom uh, in the early 2000s and where ratings were before that first contract. I think when the first contract ended uh, with Fox and NBC, I think that's when the ratings were at a high. Uh, you can think about IndyCar prior to the split. Uh, that was when their ratings were at the highest. And I think they were ahead of NASCAR at that point. The split was kind of what was one of the assists along with the, you know, the Earnhardt-Gordon rivalry and stuff like that i mean that took place during and even formula one i mean now they give free to air for us we don't have we just have it on espn but it's the sky f1 feed instead of actually having a crew and announce the whole thing uh you know i think which is the way nascar is going now with their remote uh commentary from doing it in the charlotte studios instead of going right to the track uh, you know yeah. there a lot of the officials aren't going on the road anymore because they're just watching from the hall of fame on monitors on race day uh so there's a lot of that that's going on um so yeah the, there's a lot of changes that have gone on in the sport in the last 365 days alone and we are going to see a lot more of it in the next couple of years um, and, and I think a lot of that is going to be based on the strength of streaming numbers. Yeah. And I think with, um, I, with some of the announcements that have come along with, I mean, I know NASCAR, they're, I don't know, with contracts and all with the TV. And I mean, of course, with NBC not having a sports network after the end of this year, uh, they're going to move over to USA. But I think they're trying to make Peacock the thing to where they're trying to get people to pay for the subscription service. I figure FS1 uh, for all intents and purposes, it'll be there, but I think Fox sports go is their deal. Uh, they're going to be angling to uh, 
move people to stream because more like that's the thing everyone's like oh we you have a netflix or you have an amazon prime or you have this or that i mean amazon might be a player at this point you know or youtube uh more than the big networks even though i think with indycar it seems like the news is cbs uh sports or whatever but then cbs sports is also in uh in a deal with tony and ray and the srx so and maybe and with some with the kind of people that they've brought in to, to do that deal um on the tv side uh it seems like they're really taking it seriously as though it might be kind of like a dry run with some of the people they have there for maybe bringing on say indycar uh to try to go and and bring that series over to cbs and try to make the sports network a bigger deal because i know it's been there for a while and they show all kinds of races especially european uh, races and off road of outlaws world of outlaws yeah and mm-hmm. they did live they did live hits with the world of outlaws with um reef i think and um mm-hmm. and uh, brad doty brad doty of course he's a great man and you you've been able to work and that was one thing we missed earlier so i'll be working with them this year with, with yeah. the power eye stuff yep and dave argerbright he's one of the like you you Think about like Mount Rushmore of people. I think in terms of motorsports broadcasting, I think uh, Dave Argerbright, somebody that's been around, uh, and I think he can announce his way out of a paper bag, and he can tell you anything and everything about sprint car racing. Him and Brad Doty, and I think him, Brad Doty, and Ralph Shaheen. That's got to be something. I am. I'm hopefully giving you ideas for whenever for other guests that you're going to have. But I, well, is, you know, what, the funny thing is, is that what people don't realize about Dave Argabright is how versed he is in stock cars. He is incredibly versed in stock cars. He is a walking encyclopedia of the old ASA National Tour, uh, and that's one of the funny things that I don't think people get with Dave Argabright. It's not just the knowledge of open wheel and sprint car racing he has it's it's a general knowledge of racing yeah and that's something that you could tell because there's a respect level you know he's kind of like you know dr dick bergren there's certain people that when they walk in or when you're talking to them it's like the late steve burns you know when they you were talking to those guys and 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 there was a different level you had to go and be on your you couldn't carry an attitude you can go like you had to respect that person and i think that's kind of gone away and you brought that up earlier in that it's not really about that it's more lip service and for pr than it is about actually about racing how good you look or yeah i know it's one of the i try to tell people one of the biggest obstacles i face nowadays to get on air is you either have to be uh fall out of a magazine model type um you have to be related to somebody or have a big last name yeah yeah and that's a sad commentary of motorsports but i think that's kind of existed it just wasn't as uh prevalent as it has become because of as you brought up the cost um and also because of how they're trying to figure out ways to get people to watch i mean uh but the they but it's also gone away from being about the diehards anyways i mean i live uh i mean josh is uh, younger than me but the fact is for me it was bob benny and ned with 
Dr. Jerry Punch and John Kernan. That was what I started my fandom with NASCAR with. And then on TNN, you had Mike Joy with the late Neil Bonnet and uh, you had Buddy Baker. And then they had Randy Pemberton on pit road and Eli um, Gold. Eli Gold, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that, that was what it was. And then you'd have CBS with the great Ken Squire and Ned Jarrett in the booth with, with Neil Bonnet. And then eventually just those two. And then they had Buddy Baker. And then you have Mike Joy, who was working pits until he went up to the booth. And, you know, and, and other guys like uh, Dave Despain, of course. Dave Despain, freaking legend too. And et cetera, et cetera. Chris Economaki, you know, like there's, that's what it was. And it's like, that was racing. You were getting what you needed to know. There was no BS. There was no fluff. There was no stupid gimmicks. You, they you, loved it. They lived yeah. it. Yeah. And that's really where, you know, I think you have people now and like you could say it with like with NBC's coverage, one or a couple people in particular, especially with who they're going to have covering the Indianapolis 500, uh, that it's less about racing and more about, you know, being loud mouth obnoxious people or being more about PR than it is about racing. And it's a shame because there's people that I do respect on there, like Lee Diffie and uh, he's one of the best and he's been around for a while and he came from Australia. He's come over here. He could call any sport really. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of has to deal with a circus. And I think that's part of what what's wrong. And I think that's probably maybe part of what makes Mike joy so great is that maybe it kind of gotten away from him a little bit, but now that Boyer's in there and the fact that he's basically having to be a, be a air traffic controller between Clint Boyer being Clint Boyer and then Gordon with his random musings um, and him being the number one Hendrick fanboy that they have to have on every, they have to have Hendrick fan person on every telecast. I think with NASCAR, I think it must be a thing, yeah, whether it's Jeff, there. Jeff, Dale, Latart, like it, it must be a thing. Like there must be some sort of quota that they have to meet, but. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know why they do what they do. <laughs> if I did, I would probably know why I didn't get picked up for a gig or did not get picked up uh, or did get picked up for one. Yeah, but it's, um, it's all good. It's, but it, it speaks to that, you know, like it speaks to what you said about who you need to know or what you know or whatever. I mean, Junior could do whatever he wants. He's junior. Uh, I mean, and Jeff Gordon could do whatever he wants because he's Jeff Gordon. But, you know, it's kind of the biases. Yeah. Yeah. For someone like myself, I, I like to think that I got where I am on the fact that I just worked my butt off and I tried to do the best job every time I, I went on air or went to the track. Uh, that's what I tried to do because uh, I don't have a famous last name. I didn't come from a well-known racing family or anything like that. So I've got to make, you know, the, the product that is me, you know, do the best job that way I can get another job. Yeah. And that's, and that's how it always, that's what it was for a while over many mm -hmm. years. And that's like for 30, what is it? For me, it's 30 years of being a fan and in some involvement in some way, shape or form of motorsports and trying to cover it, you know, doing whatever. Everything was cars and it still is and it still will be for the rest of my life. But it's less about people like us and it's more about, you know, 
show. five second. Yeah, it's it's more about like that's why I don't get how NHRA isn't a thing because for everybody's attention spans, cars go four seconds like and they're loud and they're crazy and they're whatever. You know, like why isn't NHRA? It, it's not as big as it was when they were on TNN with Steve Evans and Dave McClelland and Bob Fry and the whole crew that it was better and it was more dramatic and it was cooler. They blew up a lot more too. I think that was probably part of it, but you know, that and also you had someone like Steve Evans and Steve Evans was the Chris Economaki of drag racing. Uh, I mean, God rest his soul. Uh, He was another one of those guys that could get on the mic and do any any sport he could do yeah. sprint cars he could do nascar uh yeah, steve, evans, steve evans was incredible but you knew but you knew he was a drag guy just from listening to the way he talked about it how it just flowed from him naturally and uh those are the ways that you could pick up on it yeah and that's that was something like i remember him working the knoxville national suit reminded me that he used to call the Knoxville national shows before Ralph uh, took over. Um, and I mean, I always remember Ralph when he had to do monster jam with, uh, with um, what's or not. Yeah. I think it was monster jam or something. And it was with um, dusty roads. There was some sort of, they had some sort of promo he had to do with dusty roads. One of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And that was about as nervous as I've ever seen Ralph Sheen. And it doesn't, that doesn't seem like he sweats a lot either, but I think he was sweating at that moment when he was doing that, that promo with, <laughs> I think he thought that he was going to have to do a crimson mask or something. Cause that was uh, dusty Rhodes' whole deal for all those years when he was fighting Ric Flair, but. Oh God. That's yeah. great stuff. Uh, well, listen guys, it's uh 10 30 at night. I hate to go, but I do have to get going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I still yeah. got some paperwork I have to do here and then hop in the shower and go to bed. But thank you for having me on. And really, it's oh. been great. No, thanks for yeah. staying on and adding to the conversation there. I figured uh, we'd, uh, I was, uh, that you would go, you wanted to, I was, we were going to let you go, but we were <laughs> glad that you stayed on and got some even greater content. So we can just go and talk about how far reaching your knowledge is in regards to what we see or what things are going to be going on with racing and, production here and soon enough thanks guys i appreciate it thanks thank you derek all right have a good night right you too uh yeah so i mean when it comes to uh this indie car race let me just go through the results renas vk roman grosjean alex Pelot, your top three joseph newgarden finish and those were three of the four what is it five guys led the race um 77 of the uh what is it 85 laps were led by vk or grosjean otherwise Pelot, scott dixon and ryan hunter ray were the other leaders uh when it comes to yeah new garden ray hall pagino rossi scotty mclaughlin dixon erickson your top 10. um when it comes to guys that were in the top 10 in qualifying herda finished 13th at jones finished 14th and then Jack Harvey started third and had problems, finished a lap down in 23rd. And Connor Daly got um, wrecked on the first lap. Uh, he had issues and he finished dead last. Uh, he got into it. Uh, Pagano nailed him on the start. So 
going into the point standings, Dixon has a 13-point lead on his teammate Alex Pillow. Uh, Joseph Newgarden is 28 points back of Dixon in third. Award, 30 points back in fourth. And Graham Rehal is fifth, 39 points behind. Renus VK, after his win, is now sixth in points. So it's double points for the Indianapolis 500. So all these guys, it's a it's 100 points to win. Right now, there's 16 drivers within 100 points of the lead, but, you know, it's Scott Dixon, and he dominated the race last year, and it was a good pit stop and a great late race uh, adjustments by Takuma Sato that basically cost Dixon that elusive second Indy 500 win. But, I mean, we'll get into the Indy 500 here in a minute uh, because there's – we. They're at practice. They've been uh, got some uh, new cars, different teams. What are those chances looking like? And some of the one-offs that we're going to see for sure. Uh, Dover was a Hendrick Motorsports benefit. It's something we haven't said in a long time. Uh, top four, Hendrick Motorsports. Yeah, they swept uh, the weekend. They swept the weekend, and it was uh, pretty epic. Uh, it looked like Young Money was going to get the win. He's done this a lot this year and most of his career, frankly, where he'll lead a lot of the race. And then when it counts, uh, it doesn't really go his way. It wasn't his fault in terms of on the racetrack. Uh, you could blame it on pit road and not really having the best car at that point. It was clean air. Alex Bowman and the 48 crew going and making a great pit stop. Uh, to put him in the lead. And from there he took off and won his second race of the year. First time he's had multiple wins in a season. He's only the second driver so far in 2021 with multiple wins. Uh, you know, you had Larson finish second in that race and uh, William Byron, who continues to knock top tens off. It kind of fits the narrative of um what Derek was talking about in regards to people turning wrenches or being somebody who could actually give you that kind of feedback versus somebody who can't actually, I'm sorry, Elliot finished third and Byron finished fourth, but still top four, all uh, Rick Hendrick hasn't happened in a while. Uh, Logano finished fifth, Harvick, Hamlin, Reddick, Daniel Suarez, who, I mean, a lot of weeks this year, I mean, if there's been a, a car or a team that has probably been the most impressive in this sport this year, it has to be, I mean, Trackhouse is really in, in the running for most impressive team, especially for a brand new organization. Um, and considering that RCR equipment relative to where they were last year, uh, I mean, the 43 car not really running all that much better. It's the same crew chief, same stuff, more or less, but they just have theoretically, theoretically a better driver. I mean, granted, statistics would say that and Eric Jones is a better driver, but even with his talent and his experience and all that, they've only been able to run good about once a month, which is what they did. Yeah, it was the same with Bubba. With Bubba. And then for all these years, they were running with the Germain team and they're absolute, they're more or less trash. Uh, and that's probably why title is never going to be able to find a full-time ride again. Uh, 
But now you have Daniel Suarez with Travis Mack, former Hendrick guy and, uh, you know, junior motorsports guy. And they have these Chevys and they're running They're And in some cases they're out running the RCR cars. I mean, not this weekend with Reddick because Reddick had a good car and he's been on a little bit of a momentum build here. But um, yeah, I mean, Hendrick Motorsports doing what they did for decades, uh, dominating the show. So basically, what is it? 361 laps, 381 laps led there uh, by three Hendrick cars. And then the rest of the field led uh, 20 something there with uh, what's it called? Hamlin had two, Truex had 16. Yeah, so 18 laps. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, I mean, Briscoe, uh, for me, uh, I mean, Truex was on pole, led early, and then whatever they did during the comp caution or something, they completely lost their their handle, and he ended up finishing a lap down. Uh, Briscoe was going to be the lucky dog at the end of the first segment, and a bad year tire failed, and then that was the end of his day, basically. Uh, he had a car that was good enough to finish top 20 for sure and that just was a missed opportunity there for him and the 14 team to build on the momentum they've had the last few weeks and he'll at least they'll have qualifying and they'll have practice this week at coda uh but even with that i'd i'd still rather uh yeah the continued good performances because they're so far back in points um bubba wallace had his best finish of the year in 11th uh, they made a, uh, what's his name? Wheeler actually made a decent call for once and kept him out. And, uh, he was able to hold up, uh, his car owner and old Dennis got butthurt about it. And it's like, well, you hired the guy. He has to race. Uh, he can't just pull over for you. It's not formula one. Um, Ryan Blaney, 12th, Kurt Busch, 13th, Dylan Chastain, a good run for him. Keselowski, another week without a crew chief or car chief, whatever, and just was kind of out there. And Busher, last car in the lead lap. So, yeah, uh, Hendrick Motorsports benefit, huh, Josh? Yeah, I mean, with Larson, I mean, he led 263 laps, and obviously with with that, I mean, you expected him to win, and I mean, you can't really fault him for not coming through this time. I mean, they lost the race on pit road. And I mean, it's not the first time that a, a Hendrick car at Dover has uh, was the best car and led the most laps and then basically lost the race on pit road or on a restart and then ended up finishing second to another Hendrick teammate. I mean, I was trying to reference a uh, Dale Jr. Jimmy Johnson 2013 Dover chase race there because uh, that happened there. And I remember watching that one, but I mean, it was kind of a similar result here. Obviously, Kyle Larson really dominated that one. But I mean, you look at the uh the way that it played out it was basically uh, larson i mean he was just trying to make up time to alex bowman there at the end of that race the last 100 laps but just wasn't able to come through with it and i mean he had a couple of opportunities maybe with traffic but still i mean with with dover for whatever reason it's just uh the whoever's in the lead uh it has clean air and even with uh, they, I mean, they ran the 750 package again at, at this track. And even with that, it still was a, a struggle for uh, the 
previous leader, I guess, to get back into the lead, and they definitely didn't have a clean error, uh, and they had had to go through traffic and and try to get back to lead, and ultimately it did not happen. But uh, I mean, Alex Bowman again, you know, you kind of don't expect him to to win like that, but he went out and won again. Now all of a sudden he has the uh, second most wins in in Cup this year, and could be. Now we have to think about him as a, a name that could uh, be a factor later in the year when we get to the the playoffs and could he be a guy that makes it to uh, Phoenix with the, the championship four? I mean, we have to consider him now, especially with it, what seems like this year being a, a pretty level year, but I mean, for Hendrick, I mean, all, all around looks like they've got a, a great start to the year and it seems like they might be the team uh, to look out for this year. Um, and then also, like you said, Bubba Wallace, like uh, was looking out for him at the end, trying to see if he could get in the top 10, get his first top 10, but didn't get it, uh, that tenth place finish, but of course uh, they did get their best finish of the year. So uh, finally, a decent result for them, and uh, maybe it's the uh, start of some better runs. I mean, they have been running kind of the bottom half of the top twenty, so maybe they'll start running towards uh, the end of the top ten. Kind of see that progression, uh, like like I've talked about in the past on the show. Yeah, and it's something that we'll see now that we have some of these new races that are coming up here starting with Coda, uh, you'll have Nashville, uh, Super Speedway, uh, you'll have Road America, the Indy Road Course, um, and then some of these other deals where they're going to have way more 750 races. I'm curious as to how that will um, uh, settle out in regards to who stands out there, because Truex has definitely proven to be the car in most cases at these 750 racetracks, especially on shorter racetracks. But Hendrick Motorsports has been probably the best, uh, you know, across the board on the cookie cutters with 550s. Uh, But in Larson's case, he's been good all year, and I think it's kind of convenient because they need to get him money uh, because Hendrick's paying out of pocket basically to run that car. And, you know, they have ally with 48 and now it looks like alex bowman has a career after all these years of kind of being a nomad of sorts to now um replace dale jr keep that sponsor and then eventually now move like they ran out of sponsorship whatever and then to get jimmy's sponsor and now he's gonna basically have a career it's pretty cool he's probably the one guy that has a personality at hendrick motorsports um he's he's, he can actually talk um, it's it's actually something not it isn't it's more palatable than a lot of people Hendrick Motorsports seem to hire, uh, you know. Like the interesting thing though with that, I mean, that's something we're going to look at. I think it might take place. It might be taken care of here this weekend. Uh, but Clyde hasn't won yet. Uh, they bring it up every week. The fact that Hamlin hasn't won, Clyde and and Harvick they won twenty one of the thirty six races last year, and none of them have a win yet. Um, I figure that'll come along. You can't run that good in Hamlin's case in most weeks to not win eventually. Uh, in in Elliott's case, at times he's been the worst Hendrick car, which is interesting considering how he finished out the year last year and at times how well he's done. Uh, you know, whether it's a sacrifice because of, you know, trying to put Larson over to get him sponsorship, you know, Byron 
all of a sudden figuring out how to drive a cup car or more than more than that, getting Rudy Fugel to be his freaking Zen master. Um, and then the Greg Ives, uh, Alex Bowman combination finally coming of age, I guess is what it all comes together in that sense. Um, yeah, in terms of the points, uh, right now, of course, you have 10 winners with uh, Michael McDowell, who actually has less points than uh, Tyler Reddick. So that'll be interesting. I mean, if there were more than 16 winners as it stands right now, uh, Michael McDowell could be knocked out after winning the Daytona 500. I mean, the Alex Bowman right now is 140 points behind Martin Truex Jr. Uh, for in terms of just playoff standing. And then if you consider Danny Hamlin, he's nearly 240, is it 242, it looks like. So that's insane um, how many points Danny Hamlin has this year uh, so far. And so Bowman is going to be banking on keeping on winning. Uh, some of these other drivers like Truex, Byron, uh, they're pretty good in points. They'll be all right. Logano, Larson, Blaney are all pretty close. And then Brad and Kyle, who don't like each other after Kyle talked about him and Joey Logano on the I Am NASCAR podcast. He kind of seemed human, which was uh, convenient. Um, but he didn't mince words when it came to June Bug or either the Penske guys, at least one Penske guy. Well, well, one that's a Penske guy for a long time, and one that may not be a Penske guy here soon enough. Um, in regards to that, let's talk about it. What did you think when you heard that Brad Keselowski, it sounds like it's already a done deal. Um, they re-upped fast and all for Chris Busher. They're trying to get him back in the fold. Uh, but it looks like Brad Keselowski, uh, starting in 2021, will be the driver of the iconic, what used to be the iconic, Roush 6 car, uh, famous with Mark Martin, of course. Um, and he will be a part owner of what will then become Roush, what is it, Roush, RFK Racing, so Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing, RFK Racing. Right. I mean, RFK, you think of like RFK Stadium, but no, the Roush Racing, I mean, that's a surprising deal there because Roush has been not great the last, basically last decade here in, in NASCAR. And with Keselowski deciding to go, I mean, you have to think it's, he wants to have some level of ownership in the series and get, uh, expand his, uh, I guess, his viability from a financial standpoint. Um, because obviously he's on the end of his, not in at the end of his driving career, but he's closer to the end of his driving career than he is the beginning of his career. Um, we'll put it that way. So for him, I guess there's an opportunity for ownership, but then I guess he could also be taking over the six, uh, probably. I mean, I think Ryan Newman's probably just about done. So, uh, assuming that they decide to stay with two cars and they don't expand to three cars, uh, um, they could, and maybe maybe he finds another car with uh, some unknown number uh, to go race uh, for Roush. But that it, it is a little surprising. I think it, it caught everybody off guard because Brad Keselowski has kind of become a, a franchise driver, I guess you could say, for 
Team Penske. He's been kind of the flagship guy with the number two, obviously, in the Cup Series. The two car is the the flagship car, and he won uh, a championship with him back in 2012, and he's still been looking for that elusive second title ever since and still looking for a a Daytona 500 victory as well uh, in that car. And that looks like, I mean, the Daytona 500 one looks like that might come to an end with uh, Penske there. And then obviously he still has a chance to win the title in the number two car. Uh, but as of late, they seem to be kind of weak, I guess. And, and he still is going to stay with Ford. And I, you know, I was reading something on, on Reddit. Uh, They're talking about this on there. And somebody said like, well, he's kind of evolved from becoming a truck owner. Now he has his business, his manufacturing business with uh, Keselowski Advanced Manufacturing. I think that's what it's called. And he still has that relationship with sponsors and with the manufacturer as well. And now I guess this uh, ownership stake in the Cup Series, I guess he's continuing to build his brand and I guess forge a, uh, again, a, a larger stake into the sport and try to take home more money and uh, get more equity, I guess you could say, uh, within the sport. So it, it's it's a shocking move, but it also kind of answers questions for Penske as well, because uh, we knew that was a, a open ride next year since he was already on a one-year deal. And it also kind of fills the, the blank of where Austin Sindrick most likely will go in the Cup Series next season. So he'll he'll probably take over that that two-ride. And also, it, it does bring in a, a new factor into the Cup Series as well because uh, he's going to go to a, a pretty good team. And with next year, likely, they're probably going to have more road courses. We'll probably see Austin Cindric up front a lot next year in the two-car in, in the Cup Series if that ends up happening. So all in all, very shocking. But it, it's happening, and you know, we're going to we're gonna have to deal with uh, the fact that Keselowski is going to be in a Roush car next year, most likely. Well, he'll have a better chance to win on a super speedway, even though he's really good. Those Penske cars are really good on super speedways. The Roush team has become pretty adept at super speedway racing over the years. And, you know, Newman was a few hundred feet away from winning the 500 a couple of years ago. Um, so, I mean, the notion of Brad as somebody who's followed him for many years and been a fan wanting to go in ownership and there's a little bit of a dynamic. Somebody I saw said it on Twitter about the fact that Fenway group has LeBron James as one of their investor people. And, and then you're going to have Brad Keselowski coming in. I think what is going to happen is, you know, Roush as I mean, Roush is part of the team, kind of like how Richard Petty, like they'll leave it. They'll keep his name on there but he's going to be stepping back or he's going to be out coming out of the coming out of a lot, not limelight and taking more time at home because of health and all whatever. I mean, John Henry, his baseball team is whatever um, they can go after themselves, but you know, he was part of the super league deal in soccer and that blew up. So he's trying to go and get some other people trying to put a different face to the team then they're going to put Bradley on there and maybe they'll try to work LeBron in there. And that'll be a great dynamic to see, but to go and kind of change the the narrative and try to get new sponsors and get new people in and get fresh faces, maybe get that charter. Cause I think they have three charters. Um, 
they might get that third charter back um, to try to run a third car. I don't know if it's for no neck or for somebody else. I'd figure one of them, uh, those guys that are never will be in Xfinity that have tons of money, um, whether it's like Brockshot Jones or Herbst or Annette or some loser, somebody that's never going to do anything. They may bring the cash and, uh, you know, run that third car. Uh, you know, that might be a thing too, but I think the, combination of a Brad Keselowski, Chris Buescher uh, deal there with the uh, Roush, Fenway, Keselowski, whatever, is not a bad combination, but I think he's going to probably want a different crew chief. Uh, they're probably going to have to make a lot of changes there in general. But we'll see what happens with all that as it goes on. I don't think they're going to make the commit, like the full announcement until September. So that's just going to be a part of everything. And Who's going to go where? I think it probably saves Matt Benedetto's job um, at the Wood Brothers. Uh, yeah, that's now. another factor. Um, I think who's going to go where, whether they're going to keep Blaney in the 12 or they're going to swap them with, with Gumby or if they're going to put Gumby in the two, which I think is interesting. I think we brought it up last year when Brad was, was a free agent and it was a possibility he was going to go to Hendrick that – they're going to put Gumby into two cars and make me want to puke. Well, now, you know, they're going to put Gumby more than likely into two car and it doesn't really matter. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, the only car that Penske has that's like fully funded is a 22 car. Um, and that's going to become their flagship car with Joey Logano. Uh, and then they're going to build everything else. Uh, they don't have anybody else in the pipeline. They're riding Gumby. I'm hoping he becomes this big thing in cup. Um, I don't buy it will happen, but it may. I mean, I look at him a lot like Cole Custer um, as like a good meh kind of guy. Um, he doesn't have, he doesn't impress me outside of his road racing ability, but I already knew he was a great road racer a long time ago. Um, it's kind of family lineage. That's part of what it is. But I guess when you're driving the two car, being good on only road courses isn't gonna is only gonna go so far. Um, you're gonna have to win a lot on ovals in a Cup Series uh, to compete, and especially when Joey Logano's there and the talent that he is. And uh, so I guess we'll we'll find out. It starts silly season real early. The charters and all the bullshit that goes on with them. That's something that we'll kind of get to talk about here in the summer. Uh, in terms of the uh, round and continue in terms of the roundup. Uh, you talk about you brought up Lando Norris and his extension, which means McLaren, um, will have their driver lineup into the new car and beyond. Uh, Lando Norris this year so far has been one of the best drivers, uh, outside of the obvious, you know, Lewis versus Max and things like that. I don't think it's a surprise. They developed nope. him, they built him up and brought him through all the junior formulas. So keeping him around a British driver for British team. And then also with the dynamic with Daniel Ricardo, I think we, they haven't even scratched the surface yet. And it's kind of uh, connects with um, what they're doing this weekend, running a golf uh, livery, a one-off for, for Monaco and how it, it kind of connects a lot of things. It connects the classic, McLaren stuff. It connects golf, of course, which is iconic on anything. They could literally put it on a paper bag, you know, like, oh, it's golf. They'll buy, they'll sell 
shit tons of paper bags. You know, like it it doesn't really matter. But then you you have the guys like Daniel Ricardo, who's a classic guy, just like Junior, and wants to throw back, so he's got throwback helmet. You got Lando Norris, who just loves all that stuff, and I think it's a positive sign. I think it's something that F one has to embrace, running like special schemes instead of one scheme all year and you can only run one helmet all year kind of like scheme like that it's something that would increase the reach even though formula one in a lot of ways doesn't have a problem with reach but they do have a problem here in the united states um you know i think that's pretty cool i mean that announcement we were talking about it on grid talk there was between a scheme like a a one-off paint scheme or running formula e or a new sponsor or whatever like that was the three things we came up with and you know that was one of them so i mean that golf car is going to look great hopefully it's up front but we'll talk about that here in a moment right yeah i mean with the golf car i mean that's a a really great paint scheme like you said and or well livery like you said and i i think for formula one you know you have to start embracing the uh different paint jobs that they could run i mean maybe we see a return to, I mean, well, Marlboro doesn't run anything, but it would, so it'd be really hard to throw back. To yeah. That, it's mission but, winnow. Yeah. So <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. That's how they get around it. That's how Ferrari gets yeah. around it. They have mission winnow, whatever the hell that is. Yeah. It's their fake sponsor or whatever it is, but I, I would like to see formula one kind of embrace more of that as well with the throwback uh, paint jobs, uh, because that's Formula One's not really known for that, and I feel like the last time I remember a Formula One car uh, running a special paint job at a race, like was a Lotus that was, uh, I guess, themed with the promoting the Dark Knight Rises uh, for uh, 2012 or whenever that was with Warner Brothers. It was like a one race partnership, and I think Romain Grosjean was running that car, and I think Kimi Räikkönen was also driving a Lotus that year. So that was kind of an interesting one, but that's really the last time I remember like a, a special one-off car. And that wasn't even really a one-off. I think they just stuck Dark Knight Rises logo like uh, yeah. on the, the wing or something like that and called it a, a special a car. And it wasn't anything different from what they normally ran. Red so, Bull did that a while back yeah. with one of the Star Wars movies. Yeah, uh, I mean, but still, you, you don't see something that stands out just like what, golf and mclaren are going to do and it's not just a one race deal it seems like that they have a option or opportunity to do future partnerships with uh golf so it looks like they've uh worked out a deal to pick them up as sponsorship in in some form uh we don't know yet but uh, maybe they're going to do more one-offs or they'll expand it maybe it it trickles down to the indycar side as well and we see a, a golf themed indycar run possibly at the Indianapolis 500 or something like that in the future. I mean, they are already running a uh, special one-off car with Juan Pablo Montoya and then also uh, running in, in the seven, running, a, I guess it looks like a, a Tiger, uh, but well, that's yeah, not the sponsor, but it looks like it. Yeah. yeah, with their with their vape pens or whatever yeah. they use, uh, they're running that with Rosenquist. And yeah, with Juan Pablo, they're running the old uh, Peter Revson uh, scheme that he won the pole with at Indy, and last week they ran uh, the Robert Wickens Lucas Oil scheme. Uh, so I mean, they know it, they get it. They're they're doing because it's Zach Brown. I think that's fundamentally yeah. He, there's that's the difference why 
he's connected to all these things. He was connected anyway, well before he became the guy that ran McLaren. He was connected for years when he was a race racing driver himself. Then he became this big business guy and making all these sponsorships and all these uh, partnerships happen with teams. And that's probably why McLaren is on the upswing. While we see a lot of teams on the downswing and McLaren had basically cratered themselves out and they had to make some sales and moves and stuff, but now they're on the upswing and it's a lot of positive momentum and uh, their involvement in motorsports in general. Uh, we'll go into the roundup uh, as well with uh, MotoGP uh, was at the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. Uh, Jack Miller wins his second consecutive race on the Ducati and then the Pramac Ducati of Johan Zarco finished second. Fabio Quattararo finished third. So two French riders on the podium it was a mixed uh condition race so a lot of accidents and craziness went on uh, jack miller had penalties um him and peco bagnaya had penalties and they still ended up finishing you know in the top five uh danilo petrucci on a ktm finished fifth alex marquez and taka nakagami on the lcr hondas finished sixth and seventh Paul Spargo, 8th, Iker Lacuona in ninth, and Maverick Vinales in 10th. Valentino Rossi actually uh, finished 11th. He got points. Uh, Marini, Binder, Bastaini, and Tito Rabat on the um, Pramac Ducati finished 15th. The last classified rider was Franco Morbidelli, who um, crashed, uh, I think, crashed out late in that race. Uh, and then you had Mark Marquez, who was leading the race, dumped it off, which is crazy. It's a non-Mark Marquez-like uh, move. Uh, this is his kind of conditions, kind of like Lewis Hamilton, but he just isn't right and whatever else is going on with him. So uh, Alex Shispargo, Oliveira, the Suzuki teammates crashed. Uh, both of them, Mir early and Rins, I think, dumped it twice. And then Salvadori on the other Aprilia uh, finished or were out. And then their next race will be the Italian Grand Prix in a couple weeks' time. In Moto2, uh, Raul Fernandez, Remy Gardner, Marco Bisecchi were the podium. The two American riders, Cameron Bobier and uh, Joe Roberts, both were out of the race, unfortunately, with crashes. So a shame to see that. Uh, we'll see how it goes for them. Uh, Mugello uh, in a couple of weeks time. And then in the sports cars, it was a great, it was a great race. Honestly, at the IMSA race there, it was a battle between the Wayne Taylor racing Acura and the Mazda team and the wheel and engineering 31 car it was went down to the wire in the end uh ricky taylor made a great pass late on uh felipe nazar and ended up and also was able to was knifing through traffic like nobody's business so a second win this year for the 10 car 
and their Acura, their moving to Acura has been very uh, fruitful so far in uh, 2021. Uh, Taylor and Albuquerque in the 10, the winners over Nazar and Durrani in the 31, and the 55 Mazda of Oliver Jarvis and Harry Tinknell. And the other two, three DPIs uh, in the field, they all finish on the lead lap within 37 you know, just under 38 seconds of each other. Uh, Cameron and Pla had more pace than that. Um, the O1 was kind of not around. You didn't really see them or the five, uh, more or less, but we'll see what happens. Different racetracks, different. They'll be in Detroit for their next race, so that'll be, I think, more of a Cadillac uh, track. Gar Robinson, Felipe Fraga, and the Riley Motorsports 74. One over Rasmus Lind and Dan Goldberg, and then Jim Cox, Dylan Murray. So a Riley Motorsports won three, and John Bennett, Colin Braun finished fourth there in the LMP three category. Bill Oberlin, the ageless Bill Oberlin, and Robbie Foley wins GTD over Frankie Manicalvo and Zach Veach, and then Madison Snow and Brian Sellers, the Paul Miller Racing. Uh, accurate or Lamborghini, sorry. Um, were the podium finishers there? Uh, DNFs for the um, Jared Andretti Oliver Askew LM, Andretti Autosport LMP3, and then Aaron Tealitz Jack Hawksworth in the uh, Lexus um, Vassar Sullivan Lexus team. So that was a brutal deal because they've been on, they've done really well there and in general in recent times so there they'll be in detroit for i think all this will be the same lineup i think they're probably going to put the gtlm with the two corvettes they have in that and the one portion there just for the sake of it but we'll find that out uh this weekend we'll have uh wrc rally portugal world superbike at motorland aragon along with uh, the NASCAR and Formula NASCAR, you got Formula One, of course, Indy 500 um, qualifying. So let's get into it. Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, I think the straightforward question is, who do you think goes is going to win it? Is it going to be Lewis or is it going to be Max? Uh, who's going to win pole? Is it going to be Lewis or is it going to be Max? And then out of like what is kind of like a multi-tiered midfield, who can stand out and maybe make something happen uh, this weekend? Could it be the Gulf McLaren? Can it be the Ferrari with Charles Leclerc at home? Uh, maybe Alpine pulls something out of their butt, or you know, maybe there's something out of AlphaTauri, perhaps, or maybe somebody else. That I'm I'm forgetting off the top of my head. What are you thinking on that, Josh? Well, I think for Monaco this weekend. Uh, I'm I'm going to go with Max Verstappen taking Monaco. I mean, I think Red Bull, this is a chance for them to get back into it with the championship. They've kind of slipped the last couple of weeks and haven't had the um, pace, I guess, to be able to match Lewis Hamilton. And like we talked about last week, Hamilton's starting to kind of get away. Well, this is, again, like an opportunity for Red Bull to uh, get themselves back into the championship uh, albeit probably not by much because Lewis will probably finish second unless something disastrous happens. But uh, if they win, then it obviously this will help 
and it, it's a still a prestigious race. So to win Monaco, I mean, for Max Verstappen would be huge and would probably be the biggest victory of his career uh, to this point. Uh, so that I'm going to go with him. Um, I think their car is probably a little bit better fit for Monaco than the Mercedes, but you know, I, I could be wrong and could be surprised. So I'm going to go with that. And I think for the midfield, uh, I, I look for McLaren really. Uh, I mean, I feel like they have to perform and I'm, I'm going to go with, uh, Lando finishing, uh, ahead of, uh, Ricciardo there. We'll see where it happens, but it'll be, you know, somewhere between fourth and seventh place. We'll, we'll say for, for Lando. And then I think Ferrari after them probably finish uh fifth with Leclerc and then, uh, keep your eyes on Alpine. I feel like they, they could make us, uh, have a good finish, I guess this weekend in, in Monaco, maybe, uh, Fernando gets a, another points finish or Esteban Ocon gets a, a points finish there too. Um, I don't really see um, any other teams really making anything. I think it'll, other than that, it'll be the same from like we see week to week uh, in, in Formula One. I mean, we've talked about Haas and Mazepin, uh, you know, this season. And well, I think, you know, it's going to be another storyline, especially with single groove Monaco track does Nikita Mazepin get in the way of uh, another another car and in traffic. Yeah. I mean, he will, but the question is, is when does it happen? It's happened at the end of the race. Uh, does it affect Lewis Hamilton? Does it affect Max Verstappen? And, um, does it, you know, affect any other guys? I think that's uh, something you have to consider. And definitely, I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's not a question of if it will happen. It's a question of when it will happen. So, uh, it's going to be a interesting challenge, uh, having a guy that's like 20 miles off the pace compared to the leaders. Uh, yeah, being in the way at a one groove track. Yeah, that's we talked about that on the Grid Talk podcast. They park the, uh, they do it intentionally. I was told by George, uh, who has been on the show. He's the host of Grid Talk, uh, George House, and he's like, yeah, we basically make sure that you get um, Egghead and Lance Stroll uh, because I don't like either of them. And uh, but in the case of Egghead, that's like unless unless you're from Mother Russia, basically nobody likes that piece of shit. Um, and it's a case of who he's going to get a get in the way of when it's going to happen. It's going to happen every day. My thing is tomorrow's practice because we're doing this on Wednesday night. Um, they don't practice on Fridays, so I'm I'm thinking that he bends it in near the swimming pool complex. And does it so that the chassis is so bad off, like, I don't know how they're going to be able to run. He'll have to take a grid penalty and all that, which doesn't matter because he is a grid penalty. And then he'll just be driving around um, aimlessly like a dope and get in the way of whoever's leading, which I agree with you, Josh, will be Max or stop. And I think this will be um, after a couple of weeks and after what has gone transpired, I think Red Bull really wants to get back some power in this um, situation uh, to try to give Max a chance at this world championship. And, you know, some of these races are going to be running, they're going to run twice in Austria. So that kind of helps too. Um, now that they've had to cancel Canada, they had to cancel Turkey. Uh, so there, that's kind of an advantage for them too. So we'll see. Uh, but Red Bull does have to step up. I wonder if Checo with more time can finally 
um, get around this car now. Uh, if it'll happen now or maybe in the next race or two when that'll take place. Botas, what can he do? Um, is he going to answer? He's talking about, oh, we'll, he's looking for a contract by the end of the summer. George Russell's like, I want a multi-year deal. I'm like, well, I guess we're going to find that out real soon because I don't really know who's coming out of F2. I know none of them are going to a McLaren or going to Mercedes or McLaren now or Ferrari or or Red. Basically, the only big seat is Red Bull, and you know that it isn't. I have a hard time believing that Jahan Daruvula or or whoever is at the Carlin team in Formula Two is going to get moved straight up to the big team. Uh, I think Sergio Perez is probably going to be there next year. Um, and they're going to keep Yuki Sonoda at AlphaTauri, and then they'll probably bring up whatever, Daruvla or whoever, um, for that second seat while uh, Pierre Gasly goes off to Alpine. Um, but that's something we'll get into. I think the midfield battle, I think Ferrari's going to, and Charles Leclerc finally gets a, a big result at his home racetrack. Uh, whether it's a podium or, you know, somewhere in the top five, he's going to be up there. He's going to be there with the McLarens. Ricardo's great at, at Monaco, so it might be an opportunity for him too. But I think Leclerc and, and Ricardo are the ones to look at for this weekend. Um, their teammates will be up there too. And then after that, you know, we'll kind of fill out the points. Uh, what is it? So, yeah, Coda, I mean, it's a – it's – Brand new for NASCAR. It's going to be a very long. Uh, tr- it's the the truck race is going to be an abomination. I already know that. The only thing I'm looking forward to is Michelle Abate going and running uh, in the truck series race. She runs Trans Am on the West Coast. She's a really good driver. She's part of that whole shift up now um, group, and she's being bad to look at, and she can drive. Uh, there's some other people. You got Paul Menard. I mean, who knew he was Paul still... Menard? They get hard for Menard. Yeah, there's people that were losing their mind when they saw that he is going to be driving, and it's like, what does it matter? He's going to run 16th. Who the fuck cares? Um, I mean, it's I get it for the people that you know. There is a mo- there's an empire and a whole thing, but I'm like Paul Menard. You know, it's okay. Um, like give Grant Enfinger. Uh, that ride so that they could go and, you know, keep whatever semblance of a possibility of a championship run. I mean, he's out of it because of the stupidity of NASCAR and their point system. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's other people. I think there's other one-off people uh, in the Xfinity race. I think when it, when you boil down to simplest terms, with trucks, it's going to be Sheldon Creed. Uh, and because Rhodes And Ben Rhodes. Then you're going to have, uh, because of what he's been doing all year, and a John Hunter. So the, the Ro- Hunter, John Hunter, and the Rhodes deal. And then you're going to have Sheldon Creed. So the three top three drivers in the series. Then in the Xfinity, um, Junior Motorsports has been on a run here recently. Um, all Geyer is pretty solid on road courses, but you've got, a, of course, it's Cindric. Um, and it starts and really ends there. Uh, you have them Toyota guys. Uh, I think Daniel Hemrick isn't horrible, but he's not great. Uh, you have Brock Shot, same kind of deal, Harrison Burton. So, I mean, I think, I don't know if 
Ty Gibbs, if Ty Gibbs is in the race, it might be something, but uh, the cup race is the one that I'm curious about. That's the one that would probably be the most competitive. I think rain is in forecast for all weekend, so that will make it even more of a cluster, especially on the trucks and Xfinity side. Uh, but at least there's runoff area. Um, but NASCAR doesn't know what a local yellow is, and when you consider it's like a three-and-a-half-mile racetrack, that race might take 18 hours. Um, and that's really part of what I'm dreading uh, more than anything. I would love want to see these cars and trucks on this racetrack, but it's the way they handled with stages, the stages, which is stupid in its own right. The, the gimmick, they'll probably have competition yellows. So that'll be stupid. Then they're going to have, uh, you know, full course yellows. I think that's really what is going to be the story um, this coming weekend at Coda. But I don't know. What are you thinking, Josh? Well, I mean, I agree with you in the truck series. It's probably going to be Sheldon Creed and uh, Ben Rhodes uh, trading the lead most likely. I mean, I, I, I have to talk about Paul Menard. I mean, I think he might be a factor. I mean, it's, it, it is a one-off deal. I, I think he'll run better than 16th because – Paul Marnard is a, a road course driver. I mean, he has a lot of experience there too. So would not be surprised if he uh, turned in a top 10 run there. But in the Xfinity, uh, well, you didn't mention Albendinger. And I, I think he's going to be a factor uh, along with Cindric. Uh, Mistake maybe, there on my yeah. part. I forgot about yeah. Dinger there, but he yeah. is definitely going to be a factor. Yeah. So with uh, Albendinger and uh, Austin Cindric. Uh, it's going to be basically returning to Daytona when they took each other out at the beginning of that race, uh, at the end of stage one there at the road course there. And I, I think uh, with Texas here at uh, Coda, I think that's going to be an interesting uh, dynamic uh, if they trade the lead throughout the entire race and we get a competitive uh, deal with uh, AJ and Austin Cindric there. So that, I think that's what we have to watch out for. Uh, don't count out uh Justin Algar as well. That was a good point by you there. Uh, he's definitely been an uh, underrated guy, I think, on the road courses uh, throughout his career in NASCAR. And then going to the Cup, I mean, I think with uh, Chase Elliott, I think he's probably going to be the favorite, uh, at least at the start. Uh, but I think you also have to factor in the Gibbs guys, uh, Danny Hamlin, uh, Martin Trix. They've been pretty good on the road courses. And, of course, the first road course uh, winner this year with uh, Christopher Bell, Kind of came out of nowhere, but uh, I think he's going to be a factor there uh, on Sunday. Um, I think maybe we'll see uh, Kevin Harvick might be up there, uh, although he did struggle last couple of road course races at Daytona. And this is the uh, first non-Daytona, non-Charlotte road course race that we've had in a while for NASCAR. So it's going to be a, definitely an interesting deal there. So um it's going to be a, a lot of good racing hopefully uh i mean being a new track we may get a surprise winner in all three series who knows but uh rain is a factor so that could be uh another thing that we're gonna have to deal with um so looking forward to the racing at coda this weekend with nascar yeah that's going to be deeper fields for both xfinity and trucks 44 trucks for what it sounds like is going to be 36 spots or whatever so that's going to be tough qualifying I mean, Grant Enfigure actually is in the race. He's in the nine truck. Uh, was it Camden Murphy driving the 11? Kaz Grala driving the 02? 
Uh, Roger Roos driving to three for Jordan Anderson. Uh, let's see here. Um, we're going through some of these other people. These are all regulars. Jack Wood driving to 24. I think he's a, a K&N driver. I've never heard of him, but he probably is a K&N driver. Uh, Michelle Abate, as I mentioned, for the 30 team. Sam Mayer will be driving to 32 for Brett Holmes racing lawless allen which is one of the greatest names ever um but he sucks uh, uh let's see some other randoms cmi randoms parker chase will be in the 51 menard and kligerman is somebody that could sneak by there because he's uh oh cmi's got three trucks oh that's convenient um i thought they were going out of business because of because of uh the blm stuff uh, they seem to still be around. That's convenient. They're kind of like uh, certain people of a certain party. But uh, yeah, 44 for 36. 36 trucks will make the show. So it'll be a tough field. Um, there are some really good trucks that are going to be going home uh, on uh, Saturday. Uh, you know, these are going to... Uh, 31 will be on time, and then the remaining slots will be on owner's points. And then the seller-dweller teams will make it in that way xfinity is 43 or i think 38 yeah preston Partis driving a dgm uh, number 91 uh, ryan ellis is driving the 99 uh, jesse where is it or dylan austin dylan's actually driving the dylan bassett or the bassett racing 77 so i think they're going to try to use his past champions provisional um kyle bush is in the race so there you go uh, Jordan Anderson's using Tyler Reddick. Uh, so that's okay. So they're going to get him in the show no matter what, because he's the most recent past champions provisional. That's a good move by Jordan Anderson. He hasn't been able to run a race all year. Um, Chris Wright will be driving a 26. Andy Lally will be in the hour motorsports 23. Um, Cole Custer will be driving uh, SS Greenlight. Uh, number 17 boris said well with sebastian my uh, buddy from facebook whatever uh, he's crew chiefing boris said uh the ageless wonder as a said head that's great because i think they're going to put a decent car under him it won't be as good as his uh trans am dodge challenger but you know he'll take it miguel paluto will be in the race in the eight spencer pump alley will be in the number six instead of Ryan Vargas. I know there's people on Reddit that are mad about that, but um, Spencer Pumpelli is a pretty damn good race car driver. And Kevin Harvick is driving for Blowjob McLeod in the 0-5 car. So you're going to have some cup guys. We're going to have some, I think, for all the regulars and talking about Sindrick and whatever, I think it looks like whether it's Kyle Busch or, or Harvick or or whoever i think because at the end of the day you know that the those two guys custard and and harvick are using old stewart haas road course cars they're not using the equipment that they're actually driving with i'd be i would be really surprised if they actually were driving for those actual teams with those actual cars um but we'll find out and yeah i think clyde is uh the pick um, I think one of these, whether it's him or Hamlin, I think one of those two guys is going to be the ones that go out there to win. Um, 
In regards to Indy, I mean, we have the uh, practice so far. Scott Dixon was fast uh, today, and uh, and Ed Carpenter. So that's not shocking. In regards to uh, the field, I think the cars that are we don't. I'm not so sure. I think Ed Carpenter Racing, Penske Racing, and Ganassi are all the ones that to watch uh, for the front row and for the Fast Nine shootout. In regards to who's struggling, it looks like some of these one-off cars. James Hinchcliffe is in trouble, I think, but then that's been the whole year. A couple of AJ Foyt cars. It looks like uh, Santino Ferrucci today. Didn't have great pace, and R.C. Anderson didn't run after getting through R.O.P. Uh, I mean, I think that's going to be a, a question in itself how how that goes um, with uh, the Indy 500 with the qualifying. I think that's going to be um, interesting and in how that all works out. Um, what are your early thoughts on what's gone on at Indy and what you're thinking for qualifying? Well, I think for qualifying, it might be a little bit too early to make a prediction, but I think generally speaking, it will probably be uh, some mixture of ECR, Penske, and, and Ganassi there uh, for the fast nine and uh, for the front row in the pole. Uh, I think we'll have to see a little bit what they'll have, they're going to do uh, with qualifying boost later in the week uh, before they start qualifying on Saturday. Uh, so uh, you know, we may see some surprises there on the on the charts uh, as we get closer to Saturday. But I think in the early days for uh, practice, I mean, Scott Dixon uh, took the top spot on the timesheets uh, this week or or today uh, for the practice for the Indy 500. So I think uh, definitely he's going to be somebody to look out for. Um, Marcus Erickson, who we don't really see a lot of in this series, uh, it seems like so far uh, he's had a good start uh, to his Indy 500 uh, preparation. So maybe he might make a interesting uh, storyline for qualifying or for the race. Uh, I think Connor Daly seemed like he had good pace as well. Um, look to see what kind of pace Ed Carpenter has. Uh, Tony Kanaan, also another guy who's in, in a, one-off uh well not really one-off but he's running the oval schedule for the 48 car um but look to see what kind of pace he has and what it could be his final indy 500 start uh we don't know yet but uh definitely something to look out for um i think for the rest of the guys i mean obviously we know penske's going to be there on saturday and we know they'll be competitive in the race uh, and we can you know trust that they have good pace and i mean they they went out and uh, decided to do that four wide thing on the finish line. Uh, if you saw a post on social media, they decided to uh, post on their Instagram a uh, picture of their uh, cars doing a four wide salute uh, to start practice. So they've they've definitely uh, I mean that that was uh, for show, but you know they definitely know that they're prepared uh, for this race. Uh, so a, a lot of these guys can be interesting on uh, what what ends up happening and and uh, you know. For like new teams, like you mentioned, uh, RC, uh, uh, his name Ensign or Enerson. Uh, yeah, Enerson. Yeah, it looks like maybe they they might be in trouble, but uh, definitely going to be a def different uh, perspective of what they're going to be doing right now uh, versus what they're going to be doing on Saturday. Because right now they just had uh, ROP 
and now on Saturday, they're going to have to have uh, preparation for qualifying, and uh, we don't know what kind of pace they have. So they could be a, a team that fails to qualify, or maybe they surprise, but they qualify in 33rd or 32nd or something like that. Yeah, that's trying to get into the top 30 is really the goal for them. It'll be like what uh, some of these teams have done over recent years, like what um, Dragon Speed did with Ben Hanley a couple of years ago. You know, the having the Hail Mary by Junkos and the to knock out Fernando Alonso, you know, that's kind of what it is. But R.C. Anderson's probably going to have to pull one out of his ass uh, Saturday and Sunday, really, and try not to wad the car up uh, in the process uh, to go and make this show. I mean, A.J. Foyt's team outside of it looks like Bourdais um, doesn't have any pace. Uh, and so that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And then there's, of course, some um, root beer float head. And uh, the one, uh, I think, one regular that even though he's driving an Andretti car, you have to wonder. Um, they've had their moments at Indy where it's gone wrong. So it's you wonder for James Hinchcliffe, who has failed to qualify for this race before and has had a lot happen to him at Indianapolis. Um, could it be the time that it goes bad for him again? Um, it's something we'll see, and I guess we'll definitely talk about it next week on the GSP. Um, we'll talk about the 33 starters and everything that happened in qualifying. Um, before we go, Josh, um, let us know uh, what were you doing on uh, iRacing this past week, and where you're, how did you do, and what are your plans for this weekend in regards to um, – sim racing well for last week i mean i did the indianapolis 500 for i racing and uh it was the last week was the fixed setup uh race and then this weekend is the open setup race uh for for i racing and i think for me i was able to qualify uh on like earlier in the week last week and uh, i think my best attempt was like uh, 39,786 uh, average uh, time over the four laps. And on the race on Friday, that put me in uh, there were 13 or no, 16 splits uh, or 16 sessions going on on Friday night at 9 p.m. And I was in the third highest one, uh, just to put it into perspective there. And got to race against, uh, no, well, not Tanner, but I think one of his associates or whatever from. Uh, open wheels uh, he was the spotter and then he messages me uh, in the middle of the race uh, like early on like lap 20 he messaged me good luck and then uh, was glad glad he uh, remembered us and everything like that and you know glad we got the shout out but uh, for the car itself uh, for the Indy 500 uh, it was basically kind of had a, a tight in traffic it was it had that arrow push or uh, arrow wash in traffic and uh, wasn't really uh, able to make a, a lot of moves passing once you got up closer to the field. Uh, I made some passes in the back, but for the most part, um, it was a, a lot of strategy. Uh, it seemed like about around like lap 50 or so, there was a diversion in strategy. And I was in the one group that decided to kind of take the normal pit strategy where we would pit with about 30 laps to go uh, where we're where trending to uh, pit with 30 laps to go in the race. And then there was another group that basically kind of uh, stayed out on 
that one caution at like lap 50 and then they pitted later on uh, on another caution and then they were going to have the strategy to where they would only have to pit with like 15 laps to go so they would have a little bit of fresher tires and not have to worry about fuel at the end uh, but I was running between uh, 16th where, where I started in that race and uh, the top 10 like between 6th I guess and, and 16th so for for that like I was pretty pretty happy with where I was uh, bouncing in between uh, that depending on what lap the strategy was uh, going to take effect but uh, I I felt like probably on pace I was around 16th fastest but then there was a lot of times where I was in the top 10 uh, and then lap 135 I was in ninth place and I started racing a lap car for some reason I was, think I was trying to keep up with the lead lap car in front of me and I thought that I needed to stay in front of the lap car because uh, I needed to keep the same distance and and uh, make sure I didn't fall too far behind the lap car and I think that might have affected my tires I was getting close to the end of a fuel run and I was going to make my pit stop in a couple laps and then uh, I let one car pass me I, I let the lap car get by me finally and then uh, there was another car that got by me and I, I fell back to 10th then coming off turn four, uh, got loose and started go veer to the left. And then I overcorrected, went back to the right and went into the wall and collected another guy. So uh, that was our, basically that was my run. I did try to go back out there and uh, run some more laps. And then, which I did, I ran about like 20 more laps, but then it's like, well, I was going to be in the way and I don't want to be in the way uh, of the race and affect any other you know any other uh run that someone else had affect the leaders or whatever so you know i i pulled over and and called it quits and then just watched the rest of the race uh on the replay monitor in the game so uh you know that was first attempt at the 8500 uh on our racing um may try again this weekend with the open uh formula so uh you know let you know if i do that but um i'm you know not mad about it or anything like that but definitely learned a lot and it was uh definitely a a fun event, fun opportunity there. So uh, definitely try to learn more as we go on and try to be there at the end of the race this time. Uh, it's definitely a lot harder of an event than the Daytona 500 was. I mean, that one was a wreck fest, but I was still able to stay in it. But, you know, with Indy, uh, there's just a lot more factors that go into it. And, you know, you really have to figure out where you're going to be on the fuel strategy, you know, how to adjust the weight jacker within a run uh to uh, change with uh, how traffic is versus when you're not in traffic and then sometimes you know you also have to adjust the the roll bars as well and along with the setup so well that's before the race but uh it's a, definitely a lot more challenging event and you know definitely brings out the best uh in everybody that tries to compete in that and it's definitely something that you know, it's difficult to get around and the amount of competition and how tight it is to be able to compete and be at such a high level. I mean, it's respect for me, man. Um, and good luck in the open uh, race because that's definitely, I mean, being in a fixed race is one thing, but to with the open setup for sure, it's got to be um, even more insane. Um, where can we find your streams? Uh, where can we follow you on social media so that we can keep up with all stuff you're doing and all the Jacksonville Jaguar news too for football as well and sport. Right. Uh, for Twitch, uh, as always, you can follow 
uh, twitch.tv slash UCLR2. That's where all my Twitch streams are. Of course, go on there. You can watch the Indy 500 run uh, still up there and you know, still have all my other runs up there, uh, which you can look at and watch. And uh, on Twitter, you can follow me at JP Huffine. That's where I'll be tweeting. I'll tweet out the stream when uh, I'm able to and uh, when when I'm able to run. So you'll see that there, get that notification, I guess. And of course, interact if you want and just you know have a conversation on Twitter. And for me, uh, you can follow me at Philip G. Matthew on Twitter. You can follow us at GripStripPod on Twitter, along with the uh, philipgmatthew.com, where the shows will uh, be uploaded and it'll go on Twitter through Podbean and then also on philipgmatthew.com. They'll also, you can find the Gripstrip Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, uh, Spotify, um, whatever. I mean, there's wherever you can find a po- podcast, uh, you can find the Gripstrip Podcast. That's what I say. Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Podbean, Pandora. And um, you can also find me on Talking in Circles, Clayton Caldwell. They're on Baby Watch there, so we'll see when they get their next episode out. And then um, we're iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn. They're, you know, they're also on the uh, Grid Talk podcast, uh, Formula and Grid Talk podcast. Uh, they're great people, so go and support them. Uh, Monkey Sea Podcast, all the kind of people, and of course, Derek Pernasiglio. I'm thankful to him for uh, coming on and giving us a couple hours of his time. Uh, I know he's a very busy man, so um, I know it was a long night for us, Josh, but uh, thanks as always for being the able uh, sidekick that you are and being able to take up where I'm missing. And um, we thank you for listening to the Grip Strip Podcast. We'll be back next week to talk about Indianapolis 500 and Coca-Cola 600 and, of course, Monaco Grand Prix and uh, anything else that comes along here in racing, football, and whatever, any other sport or anything that comes on our up on our mind. So thank you for listening. Um, take care of one another and, um, you know, whatever you want to ask or not ask, but whatever, just care, take care of one another. That's what we should have learned after all of what we've gone through. and. Um, Think of those. Think of those that are less, that are um, not just less fortunate, but are their health is maybe a little more compromised while we're going through this transition in time. Take care. God bless. Good night.